This episode is brought to you by Bear Mattress. I'm going to head over to bearmattress.com, read a little something off their site for you. About the mattress and performance. What makes Bear Mattress unique? The Bear Mattress is designed for athletes and people living a healthy, active lifestyle. It has been engineered with four layers of advanced premium foams and uses clinically proven, salient, responsive textile technology in the mattress cover. We worked with experts around the world to, de- to design a mattress that is universally comfortable, sleeps cool, helps you recover faster, and increases your energy. That's their words. My words are, I've been sleeping on this thing for weeks now, and I love it. I've never had a better mattress. And the fact that they support this show and skateboarding means a lot as well. Um, you can't go wrong. So if you're in need of a mattress, head to bearmattress.com and use the promo code SKATE50 and you'll get $50 off your purchase. We are also brought to you by World Industries. If you head to worldindustries.com, they just updated their online store with 15 classic World Industries stickers. These things are going fast, so swoop them. I know there's only a limited supply. so Also... The Shetler Shoe is available exclusively at worldindustries.com. Uh, it's an honor to be able to design my second pro model shoe with World. Uh, I'm really proud of what we made. Uh, it skates amazing, and it's steezy as hell. So if you're looking for an epic shoe, head to worldindustries.com and cop one. And as always, each and every episode is brought to you by All I Need. I'm going to head to the website because we did a lot this week, and i got to refresh my memory. So, allineedskate.com. Let's see. Okay, yeah. Our second full-length video just dropped. We premiered it on the Ride channel. Uh, This is a trip, man. It's titled In the Trenches. I'm just honored to be in this video. I can't believe we've made it this far. And, you know, the inches have added up and we're still going. It's insane to me. Uh, I think everyone who has ever bought an All I Need board or any of the apparel, anyone who's ever left a comment on our videos or shared anything, you guys are awesome. You're making this all happen, and it means the world to us. Um, sometimes this life like wants to pull, you know, your art away from you. They want to pull. They want to make you just work all the fucking time. And by them, I just mean the world. It just pressures you into doing stuff you don't want to do. It makes you think you need. You need all this bullshit, and it pulls you away from the things you really love. So we have to fight for those things, man. That's why we titled it "All I Need." So it was a reminder, you know. Skateboarding is much more than just much more than just some bullshit that they can tell us to put away and get a real job. You know what I mean? Skateboarding makes us happy. It brings us community. It changes lives, man. It's 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 amazing. So our second video titled "All uh, in the Trenches." is now up at allineedskate.com. If you watch it and you like it, please leave a comment, and if you'd share it, that'd be amazing. We also released a coach jacket um, to go with the video. In the Trenches coat jacket is now available at allineedskate.com. It's black, it's got the white print on the front, and it's got a hit on the left chest on the front, and a full print on the back. Um, This thing's awesome. I'm super hyped on it. Please check it out. And... We just recently decided we're going to start vlogs for each of the team riders. The idea is that, you know, every day of the week, a different rider would have their vlog. So, like, mine will come out on Saturdays. 
Evan Mansalilos. His just came out today, which is Wednesday. And we're working on the rest of the team riders to finish theirs up. So every day of the week, there'll be a different team riders video up for you to check out. And I think it's a cool idea. I think it's an original idea. I don't know if any other skate brands have ever done this. But Monday through Sunday, you know, we'll have a different rider just dropping it once a week. And it'll be cool because you'll get to see, like, what makes that person tick beyond their skating. There's going to be skating in each episode, but, you know, I was like, I wanted to show more. I wanted to show my life. And uh, we have the tools to do it now. And I, I want to see more pro skateboarders and people start vlogs and share and maybe even start some podcasts as well so I can hear how they think and relate. I don't know. This technology is crazy, and I feel like the more we connect and share, the more we build, the better it is. So, yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, check out allineedskate.com. Our wartime series up there, Thrive Prosper Rise series, the Narragansett collab deck, the Beer Sharks up there, tons of apparel that I'm super hyped on. Uh, yeah, thank you guys for everything. And today's guest is legendary Greg Carroll. This is insane. This podcast was insane, man. I feel like he had a lot on his mind, so I just kind of let him go into it and... I don't. I would suggest getting some popcorn, maybe smoking some weed, drinking a beer, and just enjoying the show. The man has been through it all, and uh, he's just a one of a kind person. And this was a treat and an honor. Enjoy. I just love the skating and the scene. Rain, rain, go away. All I need is a skateboard today. Board today. Board today. This is the Shetler Show featuring professional skateboarder, podcaster, and All I Need Skate founder, Anthony Shetler. So everyone was, it was hot. Everyone was doing it. Yeah, they're looking for their dad's fucking metal skateboards in the garage. Yeah, exactly. Get on this thing. <laughs> Each episode brings you amazing discussions with interesting people from all walks of life. Kind of when skateboarding clicked for me and you learn some tricks or whatever and you get that appreciation from your peers, you know? The other skaters are like, holy shit, like, yeah, dude, that's rad. Admiration. Yeah, yeah the admiration or the, the affirmation. Real. Recognize real. If I didn't experience those crazy moments in my life, then these great moments would never be as great as they have been. Honestly, like for me, I just loved it. Like I saw those dudes, I saw those videos, and I was like, holy fuck, this is sick. Yeah. This is what I want to do. Fuck yeah. We're here. What's up, Greg? Pretty much, man. How you doing? Uh, chilling, man. To be here. Yeah. Hell yeah. I'm really excited that you were down to come on the show. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Hell yeah. Give it, maybe just for my listeners, give us a quick rundown of like your average day now, like nowadays. Um, it's kind of a duality experience that I'm dealing with right now. It's either if I'm home then most of the time when I'm home, I'm not really working. I'm just spending time with my kids. You know, we'll wake up at 6 in the morning, have breakfast, get them ready for school. And then sometimes I'll drive to San Francisco to help somebody. And by that, I mean sometimes people need some counseling or sometimes people need some energy work done. Um, or I just stay home and I'll relax. You know, I'll go to the gym, you know, try to ride my bike, try to do some yoga, try to 
basically self-care when I'm home. Because when I'm not home, like if it's a week that I'm in Mexico, which is part of the recovery stuff, it's full on from the moment I get there, seven days, just intense. So when I'm getting back, you know, I got to just kind of just decompress and relax myself, man. I, I got to not be around people. I need to get my energy back. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We'll get in that into all your current stuff in a little bit later in the podcast. How many kids do you have? I have a 25 year old daughter that has two kids. So I got two grandkids and then I have a six year old daughter and a four year old son. Damn, sick, man. You, you got a herd. 45 year old. That's sick. Yeah. yeah. All right. So on my show, I like to start at the top. I, I like to ask people how they got their first board and how they found skateboarding. So skateboarding for me, I don't remember initially what sparked it. It might have been like the skateboard movie, you know, with Dwayne Peters in there and the whole loop thing and all that. But I remember bugging my mom's brother, like, make me a skateboard, make me a skateboard. Because he lived in San Francisco, and him and his friends used to ride down Slope Street, which is like a really mellow street from 19th Ave all the way down. It's really mellow, and it could just you could just haul ass get to get to, it goes right to the beach. So they skate down there and then go surf, I guess. Sick. But he never made me the board, so I was kind of bummed. And then one day he finally came home and he gave me this little plastic, you know, the typical banana board thing. It was a USA Marina thing, and. I literally think I never got to ride it. I think my mom just straight up like took it and made it disappear. So what I did was I actually would save all my change and I would put it into a Folgers coffee can, you know, like those big ones. And I saved up a bunch of change and I made my grandfather take me down to this toy store called King Norman's in Westlake of Daly City. And there was a Veriflex flexible flyer, had a huge eagle on it. And I was like, put my change can on the table and said, I want that board. <laughs> and made the guy literally count. I think it was like, the full setup was like 59 bucks or something. And I paid it for it in change. Damn. So I rode that for a while. Never really serious. I mean, back then, dude, I mean, you're, you're talking about like mid 70s, you know, like, yeah, mid to late 70s. I was probably like seven years old, eight years old. And then, um, as I got older, I don't know, one day I was riding down the street and I tried to ride from the actual street up a driveway and the truck broke. So that was it for skateboarding until I was in seventh grade. And I want to say, dude, it was like the last day of school on eighth grade that I think we were doing like catamarans, you know, me and my buddy, you sit across from each other, you lock legs. Your legs are kind of like, you know, hooked over each other's legs and you're grabbing each other's hands and you're kind of just going down a hill. We were doing that. It was fun. And then, um, but in junior high, dude, I was too caught up with smoking weed. You know, my whole life revolved around escape from what was going on at home, smoking a lot of weed. Uh, you know, we were like more of the studs and we were hanging out with all the cholos. So they would smoke dusters like angel dust. Oh, sketchy. We would smoke weed and then we would play, we would play football, <laughs> like tackle football, you know, with the stoners against this, the, the cholos. But we all became friends, you know. And by the time we were in high school, by the time I was a sophomore, 
I was like, okay, I need to like get it together here. I need to like, if I'm going to skate, I'm going to skate because weed is taking over my, my, my mind, my, my whole focus on waking up, smoking weed, going to school, smoking, smoking weed. And for me, I was actually, they put me in a resource specialist program in, like, in schools. In school, yeah. Now, now you would say this kid's got autism or he's a, a troubled kid, you know. But for me, what it was was they put me in there because um, when my dad left when I was three, I I went into uh, my whole being shut off. Like he sat us down. And my brother was four. I was eight. I was in third grade, and he's like, "I don't love your mom anymore. I'm leaving." So it just shut me down and put me into this whole thing of why. So I would be in the classroom, like, why is that called the dog and not orange? You know, who said, that? Like, why do I got to write the whole word R? Why can't I just write the letter? So that was just kind of a conflict guy, you know? So they put me in this, these resource specialist programs and I would just smoke weed and hang out. You know, I never, but I never cut school because if I cut school, then... If something happened to my grandfather, who I had to take care of every day, they'd call the school and I would have to go to my grandparents' house. So I would just, you know, I got caught up basically smoking weed and being a derelict or whatever well, you want to call it. Sorry to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt, but what what was smoking weed doing for you then? Like, why were you smoking so much weed? Um, Because at the time, man, it just it would made me laugh. And I, I was depressed. I was severely depressed. Um, you know, my dad was gone. I didn't want to be around my dad after that. My mom was this incredible. I don't even want to use the word incredible. I guess that's a, okay. She, alcoholic, like an incredible, she was a functioning alcoholic in her mind. You know, my grandfather was an alcoholic. My grand, grandmother drank. So I was around all this alcohol shit. And you got to think, dude, you're what, 12, 13 years old freshman in high school and you have the responsibility of taking care of your grandfather who literally is like you're taking care of a baby I did everything for my grandfather like if it was a baby so I would smoke weed you know I never got into drinking at that time because my mom was an alcoholic and I was like I'm not gonna do that shit look what happens to her yeah so but by the time I was a sophomore I was like okay dude I need to like take this serious skateboarding wise and you know right around that time like Javante me my brother and Stuart Way we're all we're all skating around together and Rick Avicetta and then finally one day it was like Javante's like dude there's a skate shop in the city that wants to sponsor all of us and we were like what? so I remember I fully I don't have a really good memory but it's very selective and I fully remember a day where Kent from FTC picked us up we're riding around in his dad's van or something and he's like yeah man i want to put together a team i was like well can you get boards because i only ride alva boards he's like i can get alva wood no problem nice so i was like holy shit dude you know so that was our first sponsor you know and then you know i mean it was a trip because in high school i mean i, I remember me and my buddies we um created this thing called the reckless skaters nice like a crew reckless skater like, like a crew yeah but the older guys vibed us i don't even remember what these guys were but they were like talking shit and it was just like fuck you man like we did whatever we wanted skateboarders you know but then it got it got rad dude because it got to the point before we were 
like we'd had shop sponsor maybe. Uh, maybe we weren't even sponsored yet, but I put together organized skate jams at my high school. Nice. So people from all over the Bay Area would find out somehow. We didn't have the internet back there. We didn't have emails. It was all word of mouth. And there'd be like 300 kids that would show up, you know? And then I remember one day, like, Bryce Knights and Tommy Guerrero came. We were like, holy shit, dude, we got pros at our ski jam. This is amazing, you know? And then it evolved into, uh, um, because of FDC, um, I want to say, dude, like, maybe, I don't see, this is where my mind doesn't remember very well. I don't know if my brother was sponsored. I think we sponsored by FTC first and then it was Concrete Jungle and then when my brother got on Concrete Jungle we would go skate in the city and then all these older dudes were like who the fuck is this kid you know go to Golden Gate Park and they had a jump ramp out there and my brother wouldn't do grabs <laughs> like yank grabs he would all eat everything nice you know and Tommy and this kid Joe Joe Rona Joel Rona or something Tim some kid from Marin was there and he was like snapping big airs but my, my, my brother came and this dude's like 12, 11, whatever it was, just crushing it. So they, Concrete Jungle hooked him up. I remember he was like, I don't know, it was like a seventh grade picture. And, you know, he had a Concrete Jungle shirt on. He was all stoked. Hell yeah. So then it evolved from there. Um, we would go to skate camp, you know, and I remember um, the first skate camp was like, if I sell you skate camp, you know, um, and it was incredible. Well, dude, actually, no, I think the first week we went to was, it was in San Luis Obispo at Cal Poly. And that's when like Ron Allen showed up with Tony Magnuson before each street, you know, and we were like, holy shit, dude, this dude's fucking snaps big ass ollies. He's amazing. And I was like, okay, dude, I need to do some fucking crazy shit here. So... And I never really got into stairs or rails or anything, but when I was there, dude, I was like, I'm, I'm all in every huge set of stairs. It didn't matter, you know? And then I remember, I think, uh, I forget who, what happened, man, but I remember Jesse Martinez showed up. Not really. And Jesse and I skated this wall, like jump ramp to wall thing, you know? And he was like, whoa, dude, you got, you got a bunch of wall rides. I was like, yeah, dude, this is my, my shit. I love it. That and blocks. So he was like, let's surf the wall. Nice. And I was like, what? He's like, watch, bro. And he ran, dude, and threw his board down and front side wall ride, no hands. Just threw his hands up and like, you know how Jesse skates, dude. Just boss. And I was like, yeah, dude. So I learned front side, no handed wall rides with Jesse Martinez that day. And I was just like, amazing. And then all the... I think after that, like, there was a little bit of buzz around my brother. And then, again, man, I don't know. I'm not good with time. But those dudes, I think, like, Rich Ezekiel, and I forget what the other guys' names are. Some H3 guys. It was either that year or maybe it was the next year after um, uh, skate camp at Stanford. I think it was Stanford. Somewhere. That's when those little dudes came up to my house, and that's when they filmed all that stuff in the first, first H Street video of my brother. You know, the little, he's like super little, skating the rails and everything. Um, then my brother got on H Street, and then I rode for Ron Allen Sick. for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like when pros would sponsor, they'd pick like one or two AMs, and then you would just ride their stuff. So Ron would give me his boards, OJ wheels, 
you know, going trucks. Or no, I didn't ride the going trucks. I think I was still on riding thunders. Um, but anyway, man, it was like for I rode for Ron. I don't know how maybe like a year or something. And then finally, I think we were in Arizona at some contest or something happened. I don't forget where it was, but it was me, Kit Erickson, and Matt Hensley all skating this bench together. You know, these dudes were like killing it. I was like, okay, dude, I got to step it up, dude. You know, I'm from Embarcadero. I got to show my shit, you know. And I was never good at backside ollie, like backside 50-50s, backside smiths. And here's Matt doing like one foot backside tail slide, one foot, you know, backside smiths and kids killing it. And I'm just like, dude, what am I going to do, bro? So I wanted up doing frontside 270 to backside tail slides. Damn, that's a good one. <laughs> and this is like in the, you know, this is like 88 or something. And I'm like, okay, cool, man. Maybe they're going to put me on. But I still didn't get on for a little while. But eventually I get on 8th Street. And that was amazing, dude. You know, to ride for the original crew. Legendary. You know, hang out with all those guys. It was amazing, man. And then, you know, it got to the point where I broke my I broke my wrist a bunch of times. You know? And then I... My ankles were like dust from, you know, wall rides and you know, um, jump ramps. So it was really trippy to try to film for this H3 video. And I look back now, dude, and I'm, thank God, probably Sal and Javante or whoever was in the editing room, like, we're not putting this dude in. He looks like a kook, bro. Because I had, like, sometimes I would have, like, wrist braces on both arms. You know, I still had my, my super long blonde, like, Tony Hawk cut, you know, and we didn't have money, dude, so I had, like, a trucker hat with, like, goofy ass clothes that we got for, like hand me down from a thrift store or my, like whatever it was bad I can relate you know? <laughs> yeah. it was insane man but then it got to the point dude where um I guess what happened was you know we filmed for that video and you know there's a footage of me throwing my brother's board on the roof that was I felt shitty after that but that that's what I was known for oh here's dude his brother's a dick bro he threw his board on the roof you know but I deserved it, you know, whatever. We were kids. Were you just so pissed at, were you just pissed at him? What's that? Were you just pissed at him? You threw his board up there just to get back at him? Yeah, I mean, he kicked his board into my shin. Yeah. The story was, earlier that morning, we were skating a curb, and he, uh, I came up right behind him or something like that. No. He came up behind me, and I pushed him. I'm like, dude, what are you doing, bro? Like, get away from me, though. Don't skate on me. <laughs> that was like my trip out of Barcadero. I couldn't stand when people would ride right behind me and try to skate the same shit I'm skating at the same time. Like, get away from me, dude. What's wrong with you? So anyways, later on in the day, my brother says, dude, why are you following me, bro? And he kicks his board into my leg. So he got me back. Bastard. He was born on the roof. It, it fell through the hole right away. It wasn't like it got stuck up there. But anyways... But that's right around the time where, like, Jeremy Allen, Dave Graves, like, those San Jose guys, and San, like, I think Jeremy Allen might have been from Santa Cruz. Those dudes were coming out. And we were also going to, um, uh, what was it called? Modesto. There's a skate shop out there. And they would always have demos and contests. So, like, a whole bunch of us went out there, and that's the first time I saw Solomon Aga. 
Yeah. You know, he's just fucking, dude, to me, he was huge, bro. I'm 6'1", and this dude's way taller than me, and I was like, whoa, you know, shaved head, all black, San Jose, just like burly dude riding this mini ramp, and I was like, wow. The original Switch God. I call him the original Switch God, because yeah. I remember he's doing Switch the flips. creator. Yeah. Switch. Yeah. He's the one. No, no doubt, anybody try to take that away from Solomon, they should just get slapped. Agreed. You know, because that's not, that's not, it's him, man. It's him. So anyways, as I meet those guys, and then, um, and this is like, I guess right after that, you know, then it was like, I remember my friend Mike Del Campo and Matt Fogey came to school one day and they're like, dude, there's this place in Barcadero, bro. You know, you should go check it out, man. There's like a wave there. There's all these ledges. It's going to be sick. And I went down there and I never left. Yeah. This is 1986. You know, so... That's on 8th Street, and then by the time I was, um, I think a senior in high school, 8th Street started sending me, like, John Sonner's boards. And I was like, these dudes are trying to make me quit. <laughs> this is sucks. <laughs> you know, or they would say they're going to send me some shit, they wouldn't send me shit, and I don't know who was packing the boxes, but, you know, maybe they didn't hire the to say, dude, you're, you're done. we got 300 people on our team. It's over. You know, whatever it was. Because it was ridiculous. You know, they had... So many people, but I'll get to how, why that was such a good thing for me when I did venture in a little bit. So nice. I I quit H Street. I have no board sponsor, and then I'm, but I'm skating with Jim Thibault a lot nice. and Javante and like you know Rick and my brother. So Jim's like, dude, I'll give you boards, bro. You know, he just back when he, he was riding on SMA, and he had like his you know his first the Joker board, you know, that he did with those guys and so I, but he would I think he gave me a couple Nautis boards nice you know so I was stoked I was riding that for a while and then um how I got on I rode for I guess after that you know that was only a little while and then um I think actually when I was on H Street I rewind a little bit I got on Thunder Thunder and Spitfire sick and then I was I, I was riding for Thunder and Spitfire for a while. This is like when they first started. They first came out. Like Spitfire first came out. And I want to say, you know, Steve Ruge was the team manager at the time. Because <laughs> this is a funny this is a funny thing that everyone needs to know about. So I ride, I ride for Thunders. I only rode Thunders from like, I maybe I think I rode like maybe one set of trackers on my first Tony Hawk board that I, you know, I, that was the first like real pro board that I ever bought. Rode Thunders the whole time, and they were the ones, um, this is a little history for everybody too, the original Thunders and Ventures and Independence were designed by a guy named Borgie from Australia. Not really. And they're the ones that, like the skull and the crossbone and the dagger and the snake on there, he's the one that, that brought all those designs over. And then Ermaco said, oh, okay, we're doing these. Nice. So anyway, so I'm riding, riding for Thunder Spitfire. And I'm giving Henry Sanchez, because he's my brother's best friend, he lives down the street, I'm giving him all my old product. Sick. I get kicked off. I get kicked off of Thunder and Spitfire because I'm giving Henry Sanchez my old stuff. Okay. <laughs> Fast forward a couple months later, Henry Sanchez gets on Thunder and Spitfire. Boom. <laughs> so it's like, come on, bro. How does that um, play out, motherfucker? It <laughs> yeah, it was fucking hilarious, dude. So anyways... I, I get kicked off that, so I wanted to ride for for Goldwing, 
right? And I'm riding street shadows, you know, because they had those magnesium street shadows. You know, and I saw Matt Hensley riding them. I'm like, dude, I'm going to ride those. If I'm going to ride something else besides Thunders, I'm going to have to ride something that's going to be good. And as soon as I got on the magnesiums, I was like, oh, my God, dude, I can grind anything. <laughs> I can go Mach 10, grind any curb, any ledge, nothing, no problem. Dude, it's like butter. So, okay, now I'm, I'm kind of ADD in it, man. I'm jumping around. But anyway, so. But it's awesome. You're I'm probably like, holding the longest grinds. You're like hyped, huh? <laughs> <laughs> funny so how i got on dog town was there was one day i was skating this mini ramp in pacifica and this is when Dogtown i think they might have just moved to san francisco like keith cochran got some money from his grandparents or something and invested in there i don't remember the exact detail on that one fausto invested in jim Muir moved up here and i was skating a mini ramp and my friend dean coppola from daily city saw me and he's like, dude, Keith, why don't we sponsor this dude? And, and Cochran, you know, it's funny, my history with Cochran, that dude used to be a fucking dick to me. Like, I remember him vibing me out in Conky Jungle one day and I was like, fuck you, dude, maybe I skate better than you, you know, because he was fucking with me because I was going to give Jake Phelps a sponsor me video or, or asking Jake, how do I get on Alva? You know, some I don't remember what the details were. So anyways... Well, if this dude wants to get on dock, you know, he's going to have to go to this contest up in Oregon and show us how good he is. And I'm like, whatever, dude, put me in the car. Fuck it. So if I remember correctly, dude, it was either I rode up with Kent from FDC and then my brother and a bunch of other dudes. And if you, I don't know if you know the history between Dogtown and H Street, but I'm the H Street guy. And Dogtown fucking hated H Street. <laughs> they so bad, dude. It was insane. Oh, you're one of those H Street faggots. Bah, 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 bah. Damn. But, you know, it was like, it was there, and I would think it was me, Wade Spire, Dave Warren, and, um, uh, what's the other dude's name? I forget who it was, man. But, anyways, so we're there, and we're skating. And the only way I even made the cut was because I did, you know how Matt Hensley did that thing where you, you know, you all on a jump ramp and you grab the nose and you 360 shove at your board, but you, you've grabbed it, you know? Yeah, like, um, Bam did that as that well. That was my end, your trick. Yeah, that was my end. I got, I made, you know, I made the cut or whatever and I got on Dogtown. That's sick. You know, so, I'm on Dogtown, but I'm still riding for bowling, right? So they're vibing me. Politics. You need to get on fucking... You need to get on indie. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like fuck, whatever, dude. So finally, we're at a we're at a contest in Santa Cruz, I think it was, and um, I'm 18 years old at the time, right? So I'm still this like naive kind of just embarcadero kid, doesn't know what the hell is going on with the industry. I don't know shit other than Eight Street, you know. So Keith Cochran comes up to me and he goes, "Hey, dude, you know, we want to know if you want to." Uh, be the team manager for independent trucks. At 18. And I was like, I don't ride Indies. Yeah. When I was 18. And I was like, I don't ride Indies, bro. I ride for, you know, going. The Hogan brothers hooked me up. Lovely, dude. I'm not hitting. He's like, well, you know, what about, uh, what about Venture? And I laughed at him. I'm like, those are the worst fucking trucks ever, bro. These things suck. I'm not going to ride those. He's like, oh, man, come on, bro. Like, well, you know, what about, you know, let's, what about Indy? And I was like, ah, dude, I don't know, bro. We'll figure it out. I don't know. 
you know, we're at a contest. I'm just want to skate. So he was like, come to the office on Monday. I want you to meet Fausto. You know, I'm 18, dude. I have no clue who Fausto is. So I go to Deluxe, and this is when Deluxe is still under Brian Ware's, like, music distribution thing. And it's like Dogtown has a little office. You know, there's a board screening thing in the back. There's some, tr there's some trucks. There's some Spitfires and a whole bunch of, like, I want to say 45s, you know, record, like, punk 45 records or whatever. And I go in there, and here's Fausto sitting behind the desk with his mustache. And I'm like, who the fuck is this old weird-looking dude? But he's like... So we want you to be the team manager for Venture. And I'm just like, dude, I hate those trucks. They're fucking horrible. He's like, what if you can design your own truck? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, we'll help you. Obviously, you know, you tell us what you want and you can just, you can redesign the whole thing. You can put on whoever you want and I'm gonna pay you 350 bucks a week. And dude, in 1989, 350 bucks, I'm working at a, at a print shop where I'm making like 250 bucks a week. So that's a hundred hundred dollar raised and I'm like whoa dude and I get to just design my own truck I was like how fast can we do this he's like you can start you know this week and put people on and figure it out well you'll start redesigning the truck Damn. so I was like all right done deal so I walk outside and Solomon's there I think uh Jason Adams and maybe Spencer Fujimoto because they're all from Santa Cruz. And I'm like, you guys want to get on Venture? You're all on. So I wanted to hook in the, I think Solomon might have been the first person I ever put on Venture. <laughs> Sick. Because um, we were all skating together, you know, in Santa Cruz. I mean, not Santa Cruz, but San Jose, San Francisco. Like, those guys would come stay at our house every weekend. Or not every weekend, but a lot of weekends, you know. We would go down there and skate fish banks and all the other spots. So, you know, then I, then I meet Eric Swenson who's just another, like, trippy old dude. And, you know, and granted, back then, dude, you're, you're talking 89, so those dudes are probably in their, like, late 30s, you know? Uh, maybe early 40s, and I'm thinking they're old men, you know? <laughs> so, so weird, you know? But anyway, so I get to design um, the new venture, you know? And I think at the time, I think we called the first one V8 or something. So I redesigned it. We did a magnesium. And then, um, so with Venture, you know, people used to, to kind of just be like, dude, what are you doing, bro? You're like, got your team is ridiculously big. But I was like, Ternaski did it that way. That's how he took over the industry. That's what I'm going to do. So at the time, I had maybe five pros that I was paying like 50 to 100 bucks a month to ride for Venture. Nice. And then... Then that was like, a, so a couple years go on, still Dogtown, I mean, uh, so the first, no, actually the first year with Dogtown, you know, I go on, uh, they tell me one day, they, Keith and Fausto pull me in the, in the office and they're like, okay, dude, do you want to do your own company? I was like, what? They were like, well, we want you to be a part of this new company we're going to do. It's going to be a kind of like an offshoot of, of, uh, Dogtown, but you can put on people. You, you'll be the guy. You know, it's only going to be amateurs, no pros off the gate. And I was like, "What? All right." Well, then they're like, "Well, do you want to be an owner or do you want to be a, a shareholder? A pro no, a profit sharer." And I was like, "Dude, I have no clue what a profit sharing is." <laughs> you know, I barely made it through math, right? <laughs> so they say, 
they asked me, and I'm like, I don't know. Uh, I want to be a known. And thank God I did, dude, because profit sharing, I don't know if you know about the skateboard industry, but most owners will rape the company so there is no profits and they'll bonus out, you know. That's, that's how it works. So I wanted up being an owner of a known, we didn't even have a name yet. And they were like, well, let's, let's call it move. Like, you know, like skateboarding is moving, move skateboards. And I was like, oh, I don't know. So I started kind of sketching out some logos. Because before I even, I mean, bef before I even got on Dogtown, I was going to art school. It's Academy of Art in San Francisco. And I uh, started drawing out some logos. Didn't really look good. So I was like, ah. And then they're like, well, what about a team? So I was like, well, we got these kids that are on Dogtown, you know, because I, I wanted I wanted up helping like Nick Lockman, Sean Mandoli, Carl Watson, Sam Smythe. Um, yeah, Nick Lockman, Sean Mandoli, Sam Smythe, and holy shit, I'm blanking. Forget the missing children. Well, I don't I don't want to. Anyways, I, I want to take a yeah. second though. I sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to ask you. Were you ever, like, nervous taking on the responsibility of building this stuff and, like, having people, like, rely on you? No, because that was my life already. My life was always about, like, too much responsibility, you know, survival mode. I was in my, in survival, I might want to rewind, man. I mean, my mom left when I was uh, seven, which means my brother was 13. Like, right after my brother turned pro, it was like, beep. She was gone, living in a different place with her boyfriend. So, but I mean, if you want to talk about that later, we can talk about that later. Yeah, for sure. I think. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, so we put on uh, the four kids, and then I knew Jason Adams was riding for SMA at the time, and I really liked Jason as a person. So I hit him up, and the next thing you know, we had him. And then we did, uh, then Nature kind of was starting to dismantle, and I called up Mike Kepper, and I put Mike Kepper on. You know, and then things just evolved. And then it was amazing. It was so much fun. It was just, we could do whatever we want. The graphics changed super quick. Um, Ken McGuire did the original Think logo, you know, um, the, the one with the light bulb. And then this other dude, this graffiti artist from San Francisco, uh, City, I think Daily City or San Francisco, drew the tag logo. We ran that was for forever. I mean, that's super iconic. Um, when I first started skating, think you know, when I start first started skating, think was like the biggest brand for sure. When I was like one of them, I got in there and all those logos you're just describing, I remember them vividly. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, you know. And I think that with between think and venture, you know, with venture for me, it was really about like gaining as much marketplace and I didn't even know what that meant at the time I just wanted to make sure everybody was writing my stuff and if you were a cool person I'd hook you up it didn't matter how good you were if you were the kind of dude who was out there and I saw you talking to kids and you were super cool then I'd be like alright dude I'm gonna give this dude some trucks you know cause there was only five like I said there's only five guys who I was paying for the first few years and then eventually got up to like ten but nobody ever made over like 500 bucks. I don't think maybe my brother got about 800 bucks or Sheffy or somebody made a bunch of money. But anyway, <laughs> um, with venture, 
if you look at any of the magazines from like 91 all the way up to 2002, the majority of the people in the magazine were riding venture. You know, and all the people were like, how the fuck did this dude do this? Da, 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 da. And I was just like, I just hooked my friends up. I remember Tim Gavin joking around. He, he admitted to me like, you know, 20 years later, 10 years later. I was like, oh, yeah, dude, we called you up and told you about this. You just said, all right, cool, hook him up. And you never even saw him skate. You know, and then if you ask a lot of the guys, I would send people trucks just so they could eat. You know, just so they could pay rent, you know? So I was like, these dudes are making millions on these trucks, right? So I'm going to pay it forward. And um, then it got to be the point where, so back to the actual truck itself, I did like two different designs. And then Rick Blackheart got brought back in to help out with Indy. You know, and I think he did a truck called like Liquid Trucks or something, and they had like weird holes on them, and it was like like really tripping or whatever. So I saw that, and I was like, okay, man, like we can actually shave this V8 truck down and make it way lighter. And then, uh, so we we messed with the hanger for a while, and then I told Fausto one day, I said, we got to put the the holes back. You know, because we're doing a lot of no slides and tail slides, the nuts are spinning off. So he's like, "What?" I was like, "Dude, you gotta have to. We have to make the holes with a new pattern." And he was kind of pissed at first. He's like, "What the fuck are you talking about, dude? Now we're all these wood shops are gonna have to redo their jigs." I thought, "I don't care. Then make them redo their jigs, dude. This is skateboarding. This is gonna progress." So we did it, and we wanted up doing like a six hole pattern. I don't know if you remember, like, trucks used to have six holes on them. I do. And that was because some boards still had the old pattern. Some of them had the new pattern. You know, vert dudes weren't really tripping on having the, the short pattern. So, um, but what happened was they, when they redrilled the trucks, they didn't think about the geometry of, like, making the wheelbase shorter. You know, so it kind of screwed things up for a little while. <laughs> so we had to, like... Tell everybody, are you okay? We're going to fix the, we're going to redrew the whole jigs. We're going to do everything. It's going to be the way it's supposed to be. So it, it did, you know, it got to be good, you know, and it exploded, dude. The feather lights and then the super lights, were, which were even lighter. And then, you know, it got to be the point where everybody wanted to ride them, you know. So we had the biggest team. We had the most coverage. We had the best trucks. And it just, I loved it, man. It was fun. You know, and then simultaneously, um, you know, think got bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, then we moved out of our, our small little like one or two room warehouse in the shipyards in San Francisco, which was a complete toxic waste dump um, to a bigger warehouse. And that's when we like expanded. We're like, OK, now we can do another wheel company. You know, we did. We had Hornet wheels, we had Lucky wheels, we had Circuit wheels. And Circuit was rad because it was Danny Way's deal, but we were doing it with him. And I think it was maybe, maybe Bill Weiss too. And then Hornet wheels was just a bunch of, we just wanted to put a bunch of random dudes on it because you can make, a, if a wheel company can make decent money at the time. And we didn't really have to pay anybody. Um, and then 
Kind of like strength and num. Kind of like strength and numbers, huh? You're just teaming up. Yeah. And you're the hub. Yeah. Exactly. Love it. Getting our wheels from from uh, Fausto's wheel shop, so we didn't have to pay for it up front. We could sell them and then pay them back. You know, it was it was easy. It was super easy. And then um, then it evolved where we got better pros. You know. And I think maybe I'll just give you, give you the, the, the chronological order of companies and stuff. And then if you want, we can go into like the actual back end of like getting transparent on like the business side of things. If you want to do that, yeah. that would be kind of cool for people to understand. Um, so anyway, so yeah, man, we ended up getting people like Wade Spire on the team and Phil Shaw, Paul Zawanich, Dandra Hobo, Matt Pales, like Jesse Pies. That whole crew right there was like... The damage video to me that we put out was probably at the time the best skateboard video, I think, because those dudes crushed China Banks. You know, Phil was just like straight up ATV, vert, street, pool, everything. Derhobel was just crushing all the parks. You know, Wade was just going off on another, you know, he's ATV. I always pick guys that could skate everything, pretty much. So. That evolved, and then it got to a point where we wanted to do another brand. And I think at the time, if I remember correctly, Don Fisher was still my business partner, I think. And I think Chris Hinn, he and Chris Hinn somehow linked up, and he was like, dude, you think we should do a brand with Chris? And I was like, dude, the industry hates that dude. Everybody thinks he's a cornball skater, you know, whatever, whatever, but he rips. He's another one of those dudes that's like a really good person, but people hated on him because... He had his own weird style, but he would win all these contests. And I was like, it's a no-brainer, dude. Let's do this. And I always loved Jaya as a skateboarder. Like, super powerful, beautiful style, good, humble dude. Little weird, you know? I was like, perfect. So we did Adrenaline with those guys. And it was good for a while. But then I think, you know, typical skateboarding thing. It's like, you know, guys come to a bigger brand and they say, I want to do my own company, you know? And the company guys are like, cool, we can make the money on these guys. Let's do it. No paperwork is signed. There's no shares going out, guys. They just get a brand that they basically be, get creative directors for. That's all that is. You know, there's a huge illusion out there in skateboarding that a lot of these people actually own their brands. It's bullshit. And I feel bad about it now after the fact, you know, but... It got to the point where those dudes thought that we were ripping them off, but we weren't. We were funding the whole thing. We were putting so much time and energy and money. We were actually losing money on it. And they wanted to take it and do it on their own. So we were like, cool, go ahead. Good luck. Gave them their name. Everything didn't balk about it or anything. You know, and they tried it for a while. And they realized it was a lot harder than they thought it was. And the money took a lot more. So they, I think it came and went like three times, you know. But I have a lot of respect for those dudes. I love those guys. Those guys, you know, helped me live a dream come true. You know, and then uh, fast forward, you know, we moved into a bigger warehouse. And, you know, we had, I don't know how to put it into words, man. We had a pretty good-sized sales staff, like five or six people in sales, which at the time was big. Um, You know, but that's when it kind of got dark for me. Actually, in our second warehouse, it got dark for me. I started to see a lot. I just got rid of like going to clubs and doing to see, and then I got into selling ecstasy, and then 
Um, same with Keith Cochran, and then we both kind of just went off the deep end. Why? Why? Why do you think that happened? Um, because at the time, man, it was like it just was fun. To be honest with you, it was the best feeling I ever had in my life, besides skateboarding. Like beyond sex, beyond anything, dude. It was like, oh my god, this is the miracle drug. If I could feel like this all the time, I'm chilling, bro. You know? But at the time, I didn't know that, you know, people were like, oh, it's draining your, your spinal cord. It doesn't drain your spinal cord. It drains your serotonin. So it makes you depressed. So I, I wanted up going into severe depression, you know? And I remember Lance Dawes went to Fausto and was like, hey, you know, Greg's selling ecstasy and, you know, kind of knocked me out. And I got pissed at Lance for a while, but Fausto pulled me in. And I was like, dude, I don't make enough money. You know, when I started selling it, I was like, I don't make enough money here to, to support myself, pay the stuff for my house, my girlfriend and her kid. This isn't working. So he wound up telling me like, okay, we'll figure something out. I don't even know if I got a raise or what it was, but I still sold ecstasy. But, you know, it got, it got pretty, pretty dark. And then finally, um, I don't know, I started kind of. I just went off the deep end, bro. It sucked, you know? I wasn't who I thought I was going to be. I was complaining that to my girlfriend at the time, like, look, there's like five of me. There's the skateboarder, there's the businessman, there's the brother, there's the guy who's trying to be the, the your boyfriend and the, the, the father to your child, and then there's me who I don't even know who the hell that is. So I was like kind of scattered. And uh, to be honest with you, man, like the identity that was created for me in the skateboard industry... Um, just by uh, default, I guess, because of how gnarly of a person Fausto was, how gnarly of a person um, Keith Cochran was, you know, at the time, like straight gangster style. Like Fausto was gnarly. Like, and I just was like, okay, this is how I'm supposed to be. Oh, somebody quits my team. I'm told to go smash the guy's board. <laughs> somebody, you know, d- lies to me and this that I'm, I'm told to go you know punch him in the face you know uh, what so, so um but I'll speak on that stuff more later you know so anyway so in the at one point man we had like 10 of our own brands that we were making money on Gnarly. you know and the writer didn't grasp that you know we've been doing this since 89 and we should be able to buy new cars and you know so when I bought it, I remember I bought a, a Forerunner, a used Forerunner, and everybody's like, "What? How the hell can this guy afford this?" And that, I'm like, "Dude, I've been doing this since I was, you know, 18. Hopefully, I saved some money, you know." But they didn't get it. And then, um, you know, we did big tours. We did a 72 day tour, man. I think I spent over 50 grand, you know, and that was like one of the biggest budgets ever spent. Um, obviously Fausto and Keith and those dudes got pissed at me like what the fuck are you doing you know but I was like dude we're gonna sleep in decent hotels you know and I want to honor Paul Zawanich you know he was like almost like co-team team captain at the time still a pro but he was like got a half price hotel card we were staying in five star hotels for half price we were eating super good because I was like you know, at the time I was vegetarian still and I wasn't about to go eat some shitty food I was like you know we're not doing that. So fast forward to the next tour, these guys, I, I got reprimanded. Obviously, I'm not supposed to spend that much money. So now we're eating at like 
crap places and the riders like, dude, why are we eating this cheap food, bro? I was like, you guys whined last year. You guys knocked me out that we're going to go eat good food. So now this is what you want. You know? <laughs> so, but anyway, man, so it was fun for a really long time. And then, um, on a personal level, like cause of who I was hanging out with, a lot of my friends started dying, you know, whether it was murder, suicide, drug overdose, you know, whatever. And then, um, then Kit Erickson died and that was a huge blow for me. And then, um, Phil Shaw died. And when Phil died is when we should have just shut things down. You know, I think personally, that's when it lost it. You know, the riders were just, everybody was screwed up. I mean, I was devastated for, I'm for years. I'm still affected by it, you know? Um, so, you know, then, then everybody tried to recover and then it didn't work. And then like we put some younger guys on, on, and then I had to tell Wade, dude, you're too old. You got a girl. I can't sponsor you anymore. This guy's like my best friend. This is stupid. And I'm, and I'm arguing with Keith and Fausto about like kicking off Wade and Jehobel. And I'm like, why, why are we going to do this? These dudes are like in their mid twenties. These dudes are like not even peaked yet. Oh, but there's these young guys. There's that whole wave of when the young guys were coming in and we needed to sponsor younger people. Cause that's what the industry wanted. I was so against it, you know, but it was what it was, you know? And then like Jehobel winded up going to ride for Gonzalez, you know, over at Crooked. And I was like, what? He can't ride for us, but now you're telling me he can't ride for us, but now he's going to go ride for the Gons? I was like, this is fucking bullshit, <laughs> you know? But again, dude, here I am living out my dream of being a sponsored skater, you know, I never even got my own model. I mean, I had one board with my name on it. But I was like, I got to the point when I was early on, I was like, I'm not going to be a top tier pro. My angles are gone. Everything's gone. Let me just chill. So that's, that's, I think that was a smart decision on my part because I didn't have to have any pressure. I could just go on tour still and have fun and don't worry about it. And I was still making money off everybody's boards, you know? So, but, um, you know, and then it got to the point, dude, where, you know, Fausto, He's like my dad, dude. Like, I want to make this really clear before I talk any more about him. That guy, to me, from 18 years old all the way up till I was 30 or 32 was my dad until he died. And that guy was a fucking asshole. <laughs> and he was straight up. He was a fucking asshole, but he was also the most raddest, beautiful, loving, like forgiving, ruthless, I'm going to fucking slam you down and pick you up kind of like, I used to always joke like this dude's like a pimp, man. He'll love us up and then he'll slam us down and he'll love us up and slam us down. Put us in a fucking roller coaster ride, you know, and one, you know, he'll straight up tell you to your face, there's a thousand of you right outside my door. You don't matter. I can get anybody else in here. And I'm like, whoa, man, this dude's nuts. You know, to rewind a little bit, like early on, early on in the, in the think days, um, we were still down in the shipyards and, and me and Keith and Fausto were in the room. And I don't know, I don't even remember the conversation. I just remember Fausto popping off to me crazy. 
like saying some wild shit to me. And I looked at him and I was like, yo, bro, I don't give a fuck who you are, how much money you have, how many companies you have. You don't mean shit to me. No one speaks to me this way. Fuck you. I quit. And I walked outside and I was getting in my car and he runs over to me and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a second. What the fuck are you doing? I was like, dude, you don't know me. And you don't get to talk to me that way. If you're on the street, bro, this would not be this way. You know? And he's like, well, come on, man. I'm sorry. You know, I'm like, if you ever speak to me that way again, dude, you're fucking done in my life. You know? Because I'm still in survival mode. And I'm still the young 18-year-old punk kid from Embarcadero who, if people got out of line, you know, James and I and a couple of the other, other dudes would, you know, handle it. So, but after that, Fausto would always go through Keith and like kind of, you know, hey, tell Greg to not to do this and that, da, 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 you know, so, but fast forward, you know, um, through the years, you know, Fausto had us on this emotional roller coaster, really fucking mean and, uh, but really nice, but really mean, really nice. Like he was, he was like a dad, dude, but like a bipolar kind of really a, like you can ask people around that time, man. This dude would have a meeting, dude. And his his face would get redder than my shirt. Like, dude would just be red spitting out of his mouth, and he would just annihilate you. I remember we were on the in a meeting one time with. Uh, there's two different times I remember specifically was uh, Damien from South Shore Distribution was there one time, and I think Chris from Shiner Distribution over there in England um, was there a different time, and Fausto just lit up, dude, and just annihilated these dudes and wouldn't even let them, you know, talk. And I remember Damien kind of just looking at this dude like, like also going, this dude's cuckoo, man. Like, this dude's nuts. And he was, man. And But we all loved him and we all just sucked it up. And, you know, without him, skateboarding wouldn't be what it is, obviously, you know, because he was able to contain it in Thrasher magazine. Him, KT, Mofo, Bryce, they're the ones who packaged up skateboarding was like, it's punk. You know, at least in my opinion, in that era. So anyway, so fast forward, you know, it's uh, like 98, something like that. You know, Phil had already died. Um, I was super depressed. Cochran was stressed out going through his shit. Fish already quit, you know, because he was already, he was really physically, like, hurting from the stress. Like, I would, like fall down puking, like puking out blood and shit from the stress that we were under. And, um, I remember, dude, it was, in, it was insane what happened. What Keith Cochran goes to Africa on his honeymoon, right? And while he's gone, literally this is, he's supposed to be gone for like two weeks. He's only gone for like a week. Fausto comes over our warehouse and he starts fucking going bonkers. You guys know what the fuck you're doing. All the numbers are off. Da, 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 da. I'm like, what are you, wait, 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 what are you talking about? So he, and granted, dude, he, he, and I think, um, the guys down at Santa Cruz, you know, the Nike and the other guy down there, they're the ones that created this formula of keystoning your product. You know, you're going to, if you buy it for 25 bucks, you're going to mark it up this percentage for a distributor and this, you're going to keystone it to the, to the shops. And for whatever reason, it's Fausto got it in his mind that we are the ones that created this formula and we were doing it all wrong. 
and he calls Cochran on his on his honeymoon, dude, and goes, "Get the fuck back here, you piece of shit!" Like just annihilates Keith and blames Keith for the mistake. And I'm thinking to myself, like, wait a second, dude, this dude's the dude who made the formula. We're just following his lead. So Cochran winds up flying home from his honeymoon in Africa, and he shows up at the warehouse, like, probably straight from the airport, dude. He's probably just so, you know, fragile. And, and a little backstory on that, Cochran's mom used to go out with Eric Swenson, so Fausto's like his uncle. <laughs> Swenson was kind of like his dad. Um, so it's a weird, twisted, you know, reality show back then. So anyway, so so Cochran comes back and he's like, "Dude, fuck, but we got to go to Fausto's office." I'm like, "All right." So we sit down, and Fausto annihilates him, annihilated Keith, dude. And I'm just sitting there like, "Oh my god, dude, how are we not getting up and beating this old man's ass? This is fucking insane, dude." Like, to tell somebody, I don't give a fuck if your kid dies, you should be in here, you're not even going to the funeral. All, I mean, all this outlandish, like, just really fucking cuckoo shit. And, and I, we, we got up, after Fausto was done yelling, me and Cochran get up, we walk over to Cochran's office, and I'm like, bro, how did that just happen? He goes, dude, I don't know, man. I said, dude, if anybody talks to us on the street like that, we would have been whooping their ass. He goes, I know, dude, I don't know what it is, bro, I don't know. And I'm like... The dude just basically shit on your desk and made you eat it. <laughs> what are we doing, dude? Like, no one talks to us that way, bro. And at this point, dude, granted, dude, there's so many incidences that have happened with Fausto at that point. I think something was going on with him psychologically. And again, dude, I love the guy. All due respect to him, to Tony, to Sally, to Gwen, to the whole family. Like, without him, I wouldn't be who I am today. Um, but he... So Fausto winds up walking into Cochran's office and starts going off again. And I look at him, I'm like, dude, first of all, stop yelling at us. Second of all, we haven't made a decision in this company for probably six months, dude. You've taken the reins. You guys don't know what the fuck you're doing. You never know what the fuck you're doing. I'm like, dude, you got two street kids. We never knew what we were doing, but we're still here. It's 10 years later. We're still here or wherever, you know, 15 years later, whatever it was. I don't remember that. I don't know the math on it, but I, we're still here. We must be doing something right. And he's like, fuck you. I'm like, no, dude, not fuck me. Fuck you. And he looks at me and he just slammed. He goes, then run the company yourself. I'm like, I've been running it since I was 18. You know, my ego, you know. And I look at Keith. I was like, bro, I'm fucking done. I can't do this anymore, dude. This is retarded. What are we doing? And Keith just is like, I don't know, bro. And waits, fires in the warehouse with a bunch, a couple other dudes, and they they all hear the whole explosion. So I go to my office, and I grab a couple things, and I'm like, I'm fucking done. It's like I, it's like my heart finally just shattered. I knew it was over. So I told Wade, and I'm getting ready because Wade, Wade was writing for Black Label at the time. But he's still one of my best friends. So I was like, hey, dude, you know, I'll take you to the airport now. We drive off. My phone rings and it's Cochran. He's like, dude, no, can you, are you going to come back after you drop off Wade? I'm like, for what, bro? I'm done. You know? And he's like, no, nah, dude, just come back. You know, Fausto wants to talk. I was like, no, I'm not talking to anybody, bro. It's, it's too hot right now. Forget it. Just drop, drop Wade off. I go home. 
and tell my roommate at the time what was going on. He's like, wow, bro, crazy shit. You know, what are you going to do? I was like, I don't know, bro. I travel agent. You know, I'm going to go to Rica. I'm going to go to Australia and just relax for a little bit. I need to decompress. And the next morning, dude, I wake up and I have a full-blown anxiety attack. Yeah. Like, I can't even move. Arch about to thump out of my head. Like, what did I just do, man? Oh, my God. But I knew I couldn't just go back, you know? And uh, on a personal note, it really hurt because, again, dude, that guy's like my father. He made me believe in myself. You know, he sat me down in his office one time. This is after I, I started doing a lot of announcing at contests, you know, like Skate Park of Tampa and a couple other ones. And he's like, you know, you're a fucking businessman. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm a skateboarder. He's like, no, you're not. You're a businessman. I was like, I'm both. Okay. He goes, you need to start believing in yourself. He goes, when you speak, people listen. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, you're the fucking Gandhi of skateboarding. And I was like, this dude's cuckoo, you know, but you know, it played into my insecurities. It played into my ego and it played into my self-confidence that probably gave me the balls to fucking quit eventually, you know, a few years later. But anyway, so fast forward a little bit, I go to Costa Rica and I'm hanging out, I'm relaxing. My buddies come down. We're having a crazy good time. I'm renting my friend's house that's on the beach. Super fun in Playa Hermosa. And then we go into the jungle on these zip lines, you know, for the trees. And they're just there and they're talking to us. And they're showing us around. And this one kid keeps looking at me. Hella weird, bro. I'm like, what's going on, man? He's like, what do you do for work? And I was like, oh, actually, I know. I just kind of re resigned from this company that I owned. He's like, well, what, comp what company? What do, you, what do you do? I was like, oh, I was in the skateboard industry. And he looks at me and he goes, holy shit, Greg Carroll. And I'm like, what? And I'm in the jungle. <laughs> and my buddies are like, are you fucking kidding me, dude? We're in the jungle in Costa Rica. <laughs> kid knows you from skating? And I was like, wow, dude. I'm like, dude, how do you know me? He's like, oh, I used to ride for New Deal through the distributor down here. And I was like, wow, man. So that was a trip, you know, and I was like really stoked. You know, and then I wound up going to Australia after that and hooked up with my, my friend Chad Ford, who wrote for Dogtown Adventure. And, you know, I met a really incredible woman down there and she was really nice. Um, so we wound up hanging out for a little bit. And then I moved. When I was in Australia, um, my brother called me or I called him or something. And, and he's like, dude, what are you, what are you going to do, bro? I was like, I have no clue, dude. You know, I got a little bit of money in the bank. Not much, but I don't know. He's like, well, maybe you, maybe you could work for us. He's like, I don't, he goes, I don't know what you would do, but you know, we can, maybe we can figure something out. Uh, he's like, all right. I'm like, all right. So I wanted up flying from Sydney, Australia. The layover was in LA. So I just rented a car and drove over to the warehouse and I wanted up doing an interview with, you know, Rick, Mike and Megan. And I basically what kind of interviewed them too. And then. And that's when they decided that it would probably be, you know, beneficial for me to be their general manager. Sick. So I was like, rad, man. So I wound up um, moving down there a month later, like mid-January, like maybe about three weeks later, and then uh, found a place to live. And it was hard for me, to be honest with you. Like right out the gate, like I started panicking, like what if I can't do this? You know, what if I don't know what I'm doing? You know, and then I remember getting in my truck that 
the first day of work and it, this little voice said, it's the same thing, dude. It's just different faces. And all my stress just went away. Nice. So when I got in there, though, it was hard because I was used to Fausto and the way we did things at Think. You're not calling anyone so a faggot the there. <laughs> yeah, you have to yell at people to get things done, is what I thought. You know, And you go to girl, and everyone's super quiet. Nobody goes into anybody else's offenses. They have these little cubicle things that they're built stairs. And I'm like, whoa, this is a trip. You know, people communicate through email. They don't just walk in your office and blurt out a bunch of shit. It's like, wow, there's a level of respect here. This is awesome. You know, and I remember one day, um, I guess I should rewind a little bit. Like before I got to girl, people don't know this, but in 1998, Nick Trichet came to me and said, I want to do this bolt company, you know, can you help me out? I was like, all right. So we wanted, I wanted up investing some money in there. Maybe it was like, I don't know. At the time it was like, I gave him like 1400 bucks to fix his car or something. So he could drive from Santa Cruz to SF. And he was talking to Kent from FTC about helping him out too. So we did, that was the initial stages of diamond. But when I got to girl, Nick was there and they were supposed to be the distributor and was supposed to be taken care of. So he was working there. And I remember something happened where he was supposed to get something done or whatever. And I, I wanted up flashing on him old school, Greg Carroll style. <laughs> Fausto running. And I walked like maybe five or 10 feet away. And I was like, Oh my God, dude. I turned back around. And I was like, dude, I am so sorry, bro. That's not how it's supposed to be done. You know? So to credit Fausto, he actually showed me how not to treat people and the way he did treat people. You know, obviously he wasn't an asshole all the time or else I would have quit when I was 18. But anyway, so working at girl was like this totally different context of business and framework that I had to like learn how to redo my whole model in order to fit into what they had going on and just be chill, you know? And then it was super fun, but it got to the point where I guess I was like so consumed with what I was doing that I would work till six o'clock. 7 30 o'clock, 8, 8 o'clock at night. And they were, and Megan's like, can you please, you don't need to do that. You know, I was like, well, I want to get all this stuff done. She's like, you're going to get it done because they had to, I had to come in and help kind of like reorg the way they did their business. I kind of, I don't want to say completely, obviously not because she's good at what she does. So is Rick, but there was things there that needed obviously to get its attention. So I did that for a while. And then when I started dissecting, how the model was there um, in relation to Diamond, my, sh my focus kind of shifted over to Diamond. And I was like, this is not cool, man. Like you're only making 10% of what you should be, you know, of, of the 100% of the sales, they're making 90. You haven't had any t-shirts, bolts or anything for like months. What are we doing here? So I rewrote the, uh, re actually wrote up an agreement, rewrote it all, you know, sorted out. So Diamond would, would make 90, Girl would make 10. And then we finally just started ramping up, getting some, I talked to some, uh, print shop stuff, got the printing done for the t-shirts, the, the manufacturing through PGI, which is a guy who people don't know this, but I'm pretty sure they think was the first brand to ever run boards in China. We had boards for two or three years or two years before anybody even knew they were China boards. 
all the girl chocolate boards, china boards, you know, everybody. We brought it all. We were the ones who kind of funneled it in. Um, but anyway, so with Diamond, it was a trip, man, because, you know, Nick had this vision of, like, just simple, clean. He comes from, like, a, a retail background where I think it was, like, Macy's or Nordstrom's. He used to fold clothes, you know, in his early 20s or something. But he was always, like, a fashion dude, you know. Um so it was always really simple, clean, and that's kind of like what grabbed people. And at the time, because we were at Girl, and I was able to help get the manufacturing going in a more consistent way, the writers got clothes. Nice. And it, it's awesome. It's like, I think back of, you want to talk about synchronicities, it was like, okay, boom, production happens. Boom, everybody's starting to film for, for yeah, right. Um, Friendster came out. And then boom, MySpace. And when MySpace came out, it was like, that was the platform for Nick to be able to be somebody new. He wasn't big reach from Embarcadero anymore. You know, he wasn't even gonna be Nick Trichet anymore. He was gonna be Nick Diamond. So he got to like rebirth himself into this new identity. And simultaneously with that, came Sam Smythe was going to get one of those team manager shoes, kind of like Mickey Ray's got through Nike. But instead of Sam doing it, if I remember correctly, uh, Nick was like, dude, let me do it, bro. So Nick wanted up doing that diamond dunk. And that diamond, I thought was hilarious that how people fiended on it. Like it was like, I wore them out one night. And people, dude, can I take a picture of your shoes? I was like, for what? Like, what are you talking about? This is like, and I'm clueless at the time to the sneaker game. I'm still skateboarding. And Nick's like, dude, this is going to be fucking the biggest shit ever, bro. And sure enough, dude, it, it exploded. It, it helped Diamond explode. MySpace was a platform for social media to get out that new way. It was like everything kind of just it was like a miracle. It all kind of just came together. And then um, I think at one point, you know, when I was that girl, I was kind of starting to... to um, I guess out of respect for my brother, man, I'm going to skip some stuff, but it got to the point where I needed to quit girl. And, uh, I decided at one point I was like, man, we need to, I need to move back home. I hated living in LA. You know, it, it just, it's not me, man. Completely you know, different. Respect to all the, yeah. To live down there. It's just a different vibe, man. It wasn't, it wasn't me. And I would, I would actually drive or fly home every weekend anyway, almost back to San Francisco. So anyway, so I wound up thinking like, okay, you know, um, we need to get out of here. What could we do? And I think at the time, Stevie Williams was having some problems with, you know, uh, Troy down there at KO Corp or whatever. And we were talking to him about going under a new distribution company. Um, a bunch of, all the streetwear stuff was just about to happen big time. Like it was already going on in New York. Excuse me. So I was like, maybe I can get some of these streetwear brands in there and I'll have a new model. It won't be a distribution company per se. It'll be more of a, a brand management sales account receivables and distribution company. So a brand didn't have to have a warehouse. They didn't have to have a sales staff. All they needed to do is the creative and the social marketing side of things <clears throat> and their production. So oh, called up a bunch of guys that had worked for think you know, with me. And I was like, Hey man, I got this idea. 
you know, are you into it? And basically, I painted this picture that I thought was going to happen, and they bought it. They bought into it. So we all went in on this thing, which in turn in, uh, turned into Empire Distribution. It was Justin Williams, Brian Coons, and Bruce Rodella. And Joey Surreal, you know, because Joey Surreal worked with me at, at uh, I hired him over at Girl through Nick Trichet, and I saw how, how, like, he had a good mind to pay attention to detail, and he's very he's structured, and I wanted him to be the warehouse manager down there, or the inventory control manager. So we wanted up, I wanted up talking to Joey and Nick about, I want to get out of Girl and start this new distribution company. And... I, now reflecting back, I'm sure Nick got pissed that he wasn't an owner, but I knew if he was an owner that he would try to have too much control because, you know, with all due respect to him, his ego started getting too big and he thought that he was the boss and this and that and the other. And my ego was fucking astronomical at the time and I wanted to have control over everything. So I was no. So we wind up partnering up with those guys. We go to San Francisco and it's like crunch time. Like literally there's a trade show in February and we got to get it going, man. Cause we started empire like the very beginning of January of 2006. And, uh, what happened? Oh, so we go to this trade show and I'm stressed out because I don't have the line sheets from Nick yet. And that's like our main brand. So finally I get the line sheets and I'm literally creating an order form with pricing and everything that day. We go to the trade show we pitched Diamond out there. Everyone's like, holy shit, how did you guys do this so quick? You know? And luckily, I had Brian Coons, who was um, the general manager over at, I think at the time, Street Corner, to help me get everything set up before I moved back up. And, and Bruce. You know, so, um, and Justin Williams, actually. And then uh, after the trade show, you know, I'm, dude, granted, dude, I had meetings with every distributor, dude. I'm over there pitching Diamond like no other, dude. It's like, I know that this thing is going to explode. And I'm like, look, you're tripping on the fact that we're going to sell a distributor a shirt for 18 bucks. You're going to sell it for 32 Or you're going to market up the shops are going to sell them for 30 or 40 There's no way anybody's going to be able to do this. I'm like, I guarantee you, watch what happens. And the only distributor at the time that really grasped it was AWH, you know, Tony. Because when, when the diamond shirt showed up in his warehouse, all the warehouse guys took them. They bought them first. And he's like, dude, I got to order more shit. And he's like, what is this stuff? I was like, watch, dude. I'm telling you, you're going to make millions on this thing. Sure enough, um, it exploded. But, you know, so after the trade show itself, Nick tries to tell me that he's going to pull out of Empire and go back to Girl. And I'm like, no, you're not. This is part of my brand, dude. I just went and did this trade show. I have all this paperwork. I invested all this money with Justin and Bruce and Brian into this warehouse. You're not doing anything, bro. We have a we have an agreement. I didn't sign any paperwork. Yeah, uh, we have a verbal agreement, dude. Go get your lawyer. So you talk to the lawyer. Sure enough, the lawyer's like, yeah, dude, you're in there. This is it, you know. So, which obviously sucked for me to do that, but this is business. At that point, it wasn't like you're my bro anymore. And granted, a little backstory on me, me and Nick Trichet, that guy's been, he was my best friend for years, dude, some teenagers. Like, as soon as he got out of the group home, he, you know, he was living in our house. 
you know, he moved back to San Jose and then he moved to Ninth Ave. Me, him, and Joey, and my brother would go to Nick's mom and dad's house for, um, I mean, Nick's mom's house for Christmas and Thanksgiving. Like, they, we were like the four brothers of different mothers, basically. Me and Nick Trichet had bought a house together in L.A. Like, you know, I gave money multiple times. No matter what he says, I gave him money to start Diamond. I paid for production a couple times, whatever, whatever. It is what it is. So anyways, he has to stay at Empire. And then he, he gets to the point where he's pissed off because I want to get all these other streetwear brands. Why can't it just be, you know, Diamond? I'm like, dude, I got to make money too, bro. I'm only going to take 10% from you. I have a whole warehouse. I have staff. I have all this stuff I got to take care of. So I wanted to thinking to myself, like, okay, man, like, I need to make some money here. I need to pay, I, not only me. When I say me, I mean Empire, meaning Bruce and Brian and, and, and uh, Justin. So I moved to New York. You know, I moved to New York, so I moved to New York, and I'm living, living in Alex Corcoran's old apartment on the Lower East Side, and I'm doing a week there and a week here. And I'm there because I wanted to connect with all these streetwear brands. So... I connect with, you know, Aaron from Anything, Ray and Dennis from Mighty Healthy, um, Sean from a company called Rockers, a couple other guys. And um, all these dudes are like, I'm like, look, man, if I pick up your brands, you got to get ready to make money. It ain't about being cool anymore. You know, you're talking about being cool. You're selling to 10 shops. That's nothing. You're not making no money. Like if you want to make money, then you need to let me open it up to skate shops and some of these boutiques. You know, granted, you'll have control still, but you can be in a hundred stores in the U.S. and you're still not blowing out your brand. So all of them said, yeah, dude, I'm in it, I'm in it. Go to the trade show, get all these orders. Sorry, dude, we're not going to do it. The only person who kept doing it was, I think, Rockers for a little while, but then that company dissolved and uh, Ray and Dennis from Mighty Healthy, they stayed with us. And... uh you know, then at Empire, we picked up Justin's buddies. They do Elm headwear. We picked up their stuff. Um, you know, and then it, eventually, you know, it just evolved, dude. Like, again, like, Diamond just started growing and growing and growing, and then it got into a little bit more clothes. And then um, one of our manufacturers, because I had such a good relationship with them, they were like, look, we'll help you guys with your production. Meaning they're going to do the production, they're going to front it to us, they'll keep it in their warehouse. When we get the orders, they'll ship it over and then we can sell it and then we'll pay them. So they helped basically fund Diamond on a hard goods side of things and even some soft goods side of things, funded their production to keep us going. And then 2008 hit and the economy crashed, you know, and I'm losing my fucking mind at this point, dude. I'm thinking, I got, Jeff has invested a shitload. He invested more money than anybody, dude, into the empire. And I feel horrible about how much he lost. Brian Coons, we had to tell that dude, you know, peace out, bro. We love you, but you can't be our partner. You know, Bruce, same thing. He left years before that. So it was me and Justin just trying to make this thing going. And Justin was probably just there because he was like my, my right-hand guy and he believed in me. And, dude, we, we were going to do, like, private label hats, private label watches. We are just throwing shit on the wall, just like, how can we save this thing? And I should have, we, we should have shut it down a year and a half prior. And then, um, 
during that time, like people don't know this, but when we started Empire, I was homeless. I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have the money to get a place to live. So I would like couch tour for a while, for at least a year on my buddy's couches to try to like make it, you know? And um, then I met my girlfriend who's now my wife and she just took me in and was like, you can stay with me. So we we started living together. And then, then uh, it was one day, dude, I mean, I got, <laughs> this is funny, man. You know that TV show Lost? Yep. It's a TV show. So I got consumed with Netflix binging on Lost. I would sit there and watch Lost all weekend long, like the whole series, doing spreadsheets, trying to make account lists of like all these cool guy, boutique, you know, sweetware brands, crap, all this stuff. And I'm just like, oh my God, dude, I was so depressed. Waking up at three in the morning, doing more spreadsheets in bed. And finally, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, goes, uh, one morning she goes, you know what? Your energy sucks. And that like hit me right in the gut and the nose at the same time. And I'm like, wow. She goes, you're lost. You sit around watching Lost all the time. You're the one that's lost. And I was like, oh my God, man, you're right. And I felt so horrible. And um, at the time we had, when Joey Surreal um, relinquished his shares of Empire, we had this other woman named uh, Christy who was another one of my childhood friends and Nick Trichet's childhood friends. I met her through Nick Trichet. She came in and helped run the actual business, like the, the financials and the legal and everything for Empire. She was our partner, so I called her up and I was like, look, I can't do this anymore. I'm losing it. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I'm done. She's like, thank God. You know, because she was pinned in between Diamond and 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 uh, Empire. Empire because she was doing Diamond's books as well and then she was doing our books and she was doing our legal Diamond's legal and because she was such good friends with Nick and me and I don't know this for sure man this is something I'm just trying to piece together I almost think dude at some point in time she started playing this weird game between Nick and I and played us against each other because I never had any problem with Nick other than the fact that the dude and I bought a house together and then he defaulted on the loan and went to foreclosure and I got a foreclosure on my fucking credit score right before I left girl. But anyways, so mine and Nick's relationship fully disgrates. I'm Empire shuts down in a week. From that point, like when I was like, look, dude, I'm done. She's like, I'm done. I'm like, cool. You handle the legal. I'll take care of all the brands, pack it up. We were literally out of the warehouse in a week. Wow. And you want to talk about depressed? Dude, my ego was fucking gone. Like, it literally got shattered that day. Because here I am, this guy who, again, my own self-created persona, along with Fausto and creating a persona that's supposed to be tough, supposed to be a business owner, supposed to be a general manager, a girl, you know, designed all the venture trucks, made them millions here. I'm supposed to try to make millions. And then I get cock blocked by certain people in the industry, including Fausto, when I made the, the force truck and we did, you know, and I lost everything. And I was like, Oh my God, dude, what am I going to do? Yeah. And I'm panicked at the time. And I have a I have a life coaching company I just started with a buddy of mine, Kevin Sturdivant, down in LA, not Orange County. And I started hanging out with Jonas Bavakwa, 
from LRG through um, my friend Kevin. And I was like, man, maybe I should just call Jonas, man, and try to get a job down there. And my wife was like, just chill out. Take a month off. Like, you need to decompress, man. Relax. And I was like, wow, you're right. But I'm like, wait, but our daughter's going to be born in, in February. It's October. I have to get a job. I'm in freak out mode. And she's like, no, just chill. Just relax. So I'm like, all right. So every day for about a month, I got to um, walk out of the house and go. I went over to this place called Land's End in San Francisco. And um, is it beautiful? I would get. Yeah, super beautiful, man. It's right on the coast, right on the ocean. Um, and I used to go out there when I was in my 20s. I used to be high on ecstasy, and I'd go out there with my buddies. And we would just go out there to chill and kind of come down after we get off, get out of the clubs. And uh, I go out there every day, and I'm like, oh, my God, dude. Um, I'm 39 years old. And it's the first time since I was 16 that there's no brand after my name. It's not Greg from FDC. It's not Greg from Thunder or Spitfire. It's not Greg from Venture. It's not Greg from Street Corner, Think, Lucky, Avenue, Adrenaline, Circuit, Hornet, Diamond. It's just Greg Carroll. And you want to talk about identity crisis? Holy shit. Dude, I'm like, oh my God, dude, I have no idea who I am. What am I going to do? So I go on this trail and one day I see like this other little like kind of offshoot trail that looked like maybe somebody just started walking on and I'm like in this, you know, meditating a lot at the time. This voice says, go down that trail. So I walk down this trail and it leads me up this little thing and it's to this little beautiful little vista. And there's a log there and it's overlooking the bay the golden gate bridge is there and it's a beautiful sunny day and i'm like wow what do i do and i just started praying man and i'm not religious you know my mom put us to christian academy school when i was young and they told me that if you don't believe in jesus christ and you know the bible then you're going to go to hell and i'm like you're tripping <laughs> who i am <laughs> right but meeting my wife she has a very strong connection with what she calls God and she's praying and she can channel. My wife's a very powerful medicine person in her own way. And, uh, it's like, I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, God universe, you know, whatever you are, what do you, who do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? And all I would get was be yourself. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't even know who I am. And it's like, I'm tripping out, freaking out. And every day, dude, for literally like a month, it's just be yourself. And um, simultaneously in that time, um, it's actually on November 7th. All right, we shut down uh, Empire on October 31st. November 7th. I do my very first ayahuasca ceremony, which one is like one of the most profound experiences I've ever had in my life. On November 11th, on 11-11-2010, I get married. 
Okay, then I'm out there praying every day for a whole month trying to figure out who the hell I am. My daughter's coming in February. My best friend, who I thought was my best friend, is completely just stabbed me in the back. My other best friend, who I grew up with, completely stabbed me in the back. And I'm like, wow, this is insane. Like, I'm over here trying to help people. My business model was completely transparent. There was no fucking way I could rip anybody off. And then I got Nick Trichet telling people that I stole $175,000 from him. And then there's another somebody saying I stole $300,000. And then some other dude telling me I tried to steal the trademark from them. And I'm like, come on, people. If I tried to do that, one, I would have either got my ass beat or there would have been a court case. Or there would be some paperwork somewhere with my real signature on it. So I go into this, again, dude, severe depression. Thinking like, wow, dude, people are going to think I really did this? This is insane. You know, I got people walking up to you at a club. That's kind of crazy what you did to Nick, bro. I'm like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. You know? And then they started telling me, and I'm like, wow, this is nuts. So anyways, um, I go home one day, and my wife's like, so what did you get in the meditation today? And I'm like, same shit, babe. Just be yourself. And I almost start crying. And she's like, don't you get it? And I'm like, no. She's like, just be yourself. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, if you know, then can you please tell me? Because I'm obviously too much in the deep shit that I don't even see it. She's like, you love helping people. You've helped people your entire life. You have this life coaching company. You do business consulting. Why don't you just be that? And I was like, oh my God, you're right. So I'm like, okay, how do I do this? She's like, oh, well, just tell me what you want on your website. We'll type it up. You know, and I, dude, I, my first website was like this super generic <laughs> WordPress, you know, super corny thing. I, I do it up and I wind up um, sending it out to a bunch of people in the, in the, in the industry, in the skipper industry. And, um, the creative visual director, I think that's what his title was at Hurley calls me up and he's a buddy of mine. He's like, dude, this is exactly what I need, bro. Sign me up. And he was like my first legit life coaching client. That's sick. You know, granted, dude, I've life coached and people say, well, how did you get into life coaching? Well, I've been doing it all my life. When I was in fourth grade, my mom was tripping out on me. She's like, what are you like? The school counselor? Why do these kids keep calling the house? I'm just, I'm empathic. So I can feel people's emotions. I can get into their whole deal. So, um, you know, so we did that and I started coaching him, but then all of a sudden my phone rings one day and cause I, I, I when I prayed, I said, all right, if you want me to get back in the industry, because first I had a, a prayer, like fuck the industry, fuck skateboarding industry. They're a bunch of fucking scandalous pieces of shit. I never want to be in the skateboard industry again. Never let me back in. Please fuck that place. I'm heartbroken, you know? I'm that angst kid, emotional. But my phone rings, and it's Michael Fukuhara from Powell. And I'm like, whoa, what's up, man? He's like, hey, dude, are you? what are you doing right now? I was like, I'm sitting on my couch. You know, I mean, like, what are you doing for work? Are you got any plans? I was like, no. He's like, well, would you be interested in coming down and talking to me and George? And I'm like, about what? He's like, well, we're getting ready to relaunch Powell Peralta with Stacy. 
and we want to know maybe you would be interested in being the brand manager. And I'm like, okay, this is interesting, right? So um, drive down there with my pregnant wife and uh, I meet up with these guys. And you got to remember, dude, at this time, this is like 2010 and nobody likes Powell at that point. You know, it's like Rocco already smashed on him. The industry's just like, this is corny. They have, have some good writers, but even the writers have, nobody really gives a shit about. It was just kind of, you know? And I go down there and, and I talk to these guys, dude, probably four and a half, five hours. And it's George picking my brain about the industry. Why does the industry hate him? This, that, and the other. And I'm just like, you know what, dude? I'm just going to tell this dude everything, you know? It was almost like, I did a consulting, five-hour consulting job for free. And he's like, well, we don't know, would you ever consider doing a truck company? I said, only if I get a piece of it, because I helped make Fausto millions and Eric millions, and I didn't get shit. The first day I got a paycheck from Fink, my pay venture disappeared. I'm not doing that again, bro. You can either pay me 25 cents or 50 cents a truck. I'm cool. You know, I'm like, you see what I did for adventure, you see what's going on at Royal now, because I helped redesign the Royal truck with my brother. I want money. So he's like, okay, you know, and he's like, well, would you, I mean, we have this truck, we've been trying to work on it, and I'm like, I'm not interested, I'm not talking about trucks until there's some paperwork done. But I'm definitely interested in being the general manager for Powell. He's like, okay, well, we still need to talk to Stacy about it, you know, you know, what, what kind of salary are we looking at? I said to him, fair market value. You don't ever throw out a number, you know? And at the time, a general manager for a company like that, they're making anywhere from 110 to 180 grand a year. So I'm thinking in the middle somewhere. I'm not greedy. I don't have a paycheck coming in anyway. And it's fucking Powell, dude. If I can help reinvent Powell, stoked. And I get to work with Stacy. That's all I cared about. So... He's, I fly home. They say, okay, man, we're going to fly you down to LAX and you're going to meet Stacy at the restaurant there, that big looks like spaceship restaurant thing. And you're going to talk to Stacy. Cool. Fly down there and sit down. Stacy's like, hey, what's up, man? Like, can I ask you something? Like, right out the gate. I'm like, what? He's like, why in the fuck would you work for Powell? <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean, dude? He's like, well, dude, like, don't you care what the industry thinks? I was like, dude, I'm not a one to care what anybody thinks about me, man. I never have been. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Like, yeah, dude, but, you know, everything's going on with the industry and this and that and the other. I was like, dude, maybe you don't know my background in industry, but it's not that good either, you know? But there's a lot of good, but there's also that dark, like, tough guy bullshit, you know, headbutt people or punch people or whatever. So anyway, me and Stay have a really awesome conversation. I'm like, look, dude, if I can work with you every week... You know, he's like, well, I can't be in the office every week. I'm in LA. No, I'm like, no, dude, get on the phone, get on, you know, internet or whatever. As long as I have access to you and it's you're only an hour and a half away, two hours away, I'll come down. He's like, all right, cool. So I'm thinking it's done. I'm going to work for Powell. This is going to be amazing. I get home a couple weeks later. I'm like, well, I wonder where this guy's. And George is like, okay, man, we're going to put together a proposal for you. We'll send it over. So. A week or two goes by, a FedEx package shows up. I pick up the FedEx package and I feel a knife go through my right shoulder blade. 
Really? In the back, from the, yeah. Again, dude, I'm, at this point, I'm really tapping into, like, energetic stuff in my body and spirit stuff, you know, I'm doing ceremonies, and a knife goes in through my back, and I look at the, the FedEx package, and I throw it on the table, and I'm like, <laughs> fucking bullshit. And my wife's like, I didn't even open it. I'm like, I don't even have to. This is horrible. And she's like, just open it up. And dude, I open it up. I'm like, fine, open it up. And it's an offer for a quarter of the salary of what we discussed. And it's to be the brand manager for a truck company. And I just laughed. I'm like, this is the George Powell that everybody talks about. He doesn't listen. You know, I remember Chris Sin and Wade telling me they would go down to Powell for these team meetings to pick out their graphics and everybody would pick out their graphics and everything would be stoked and then their group, their board would come out and it'd be some other bullshit. Fuck. Just like, dude, what are you doing, bro? You know, so I, and I, call, so I called him up on the phone and said, hey, George, you know, I'm not sure what happened, but I was very clear that I'm not doing a truck company unless I'm getting paid good money and I got a piece of it. I thought we agreed that I was going to be the, the you know, the brand manager for, for Powell Peralta. And he's like, well, I'm sorry, we don't have the billabong salary for you. I'm like, it's not about the billabong salary, dude. It's about your word. No thank you. And I, you know, we hung up the phone. Because it's not like you guys didn't have a fucking conversation about it. <laughs> like, clear lines. You met him in person. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was hilarious, man. But again, dude, so... I could either go into panic mode of like, fuck, what am I going to do, you know? But I was like, you know what, man? Whatever. So right after that, um, the buzz goes around, I guess, that uh, Plan B is getting ready to go get their, their licensing thing through Billabong, right? And I'm like, wow, okay. And I'm still good friends with Pat and Danny and, you know, even Colin, not as much as Colin, but Pat and Danny I'm still good friends with. And uh, I call up, uh, I think I called up Pat first, or maybe I called up Danny. I was like, dude, heard you guys are getting some power moves, man. Like, can I get in? And uh, Danny was like, yeah, you know, you got to talk to this dude, Tom Jones, I think his name is. I don't know, the, the main dude over there, whatever. And I was like, all right, cool, man. He was like, yeah, dude, get on the phone with that guy. And he's like, yeah, bro, there's going to be a lot of, like, up management positions available, you know, you know, should be able to get you in. So I'm thinking like, fuck, this is a done deal. Danny's going to hook me up. I'm going to move to Orange County. All good. So I moved to Orange County. It doesn't happen. And I'm like, wow, dude, this is insane. Remind, reminding myself, like, I'm the one who said, don't ever let me back in the skateboard industry. So be careful what words you speak, especially the ones you speak about yourself. <laughs> so I'm kind of in a panic mode, and I call up my buddy who I got the life coaching company with, but he does real estate as well. So I'm like, dude, can I work with you? Just, so yeah, bro, come over. Prospecting. I did it for about two weeks, dude. I hated it. <laughs> I like, this isn't me, dude. I'm going to go back to life coaching. I'm going to do my thing. And... um. The woman who was my very first teacher within like the uh, psychic stuff, the empathic stuff, the occult, she actually lived right around the corner from me. So I wanted up, and she had she had some health issues. So I wanted up telling her like, look, I'm just going to focus on this stuff, and this is going to be my life, you know. And she's like, all right. So 
my wife and I and my daughter are living in Irvine. And we're there for maybe, um, I want to say, two months, three months maybe. I don't remember what exactly how long it was. But on August 3rd, I get a phone call that from my uncle, my mom's sister's husband, saying, Hey, your mom's husband committed suicide in their house. And I was like, cool, <laughs> fuck that dude. You know, this is the dude who shattered my entire family. This is the dude who got my mom to leave us when we were in high school. I was in high school. Like, I don't give a fuck about that dude. What are you telling me for? He was like, well, you know, I know you guys are having some money problems. Um, maybe you can move back up and you can reconcile with your mom. And I was like, Pfft. and here I am, dude. I'm, I regress back to the 15-year-old or 16 year old who got their nose broken by this guy and my, then my mom chooses to go live with him instead of us. I'm like, fuck, I'm not gonna go talk to her. If she wants to talk to me, she can call me, right? Fair enough. So that's on like a Thursday or whatever it was. That following weekend, I go to a teepee ceremony and up in Ojai. In a teepee hair ceremony, you stay up all night. There's a, a person who sponsors the meeting and it's, uh, you, you pray with peyote and the peyote comes on to me and it's, it's like a grandpa, they call it the grandpa medicine. And it's like punching me. Basically, you have to call your mom, you know, and I'm like, I'm not calling her. Boom. It's like, I'm, like I said, I can look like I'm getting beat up. And, um, I'm like, I don't want to do this, man. But so that's, I come out of the teepee Sunday morning. By Tuesday morning, I wake up in bed, dude, and there's a huge, like, energetic weight on my chest. I'm crying, freaking out. I go to this park. I'm on the phone with one of my buddies, and a vulture comes and starts circling my head, like literally foot above me. And I'm like, oh, my God, man. That can't be good. This is weird. <laughs> right. But so this is the thing. So I call my wife, you know, and I'm like, can you go and look online what vulture totem medicine is about and she reads it to me and it's some of it it's about like going into the darkness and illuminating it and taking out what you need to take out in order to provide for your family so i'm like all right I hung up the phone with my wife called my mom i'm like hey mom it's greg she's like wow she starts crying i was like i heard you're going through some hard stuff i'll be at your house tomorrow I'm in Southern California. So I told my wife, I said, look, we got to go pack up and go up for the day. And uh, drive up there, man. And my mom answers the door and she looks like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Like hunched back over her eyes are like blown out of her head. She's got to be eight, five pounds, like literally full blown possessed drug addict, alcoholic. And uh, I'm like, whoa, um, I'll be right back. So at the time I was already doing like, I've been in, I've been, nobody, not a lot of people know this, but I was doing energy work back in 1998. I first got into it then. So fast forward, this is 2010, no, 2011. And 
I go to my mom, like, look, I'll be right back. I go to my car, I grab my box. It's got some feathers in there, some things I can use to help clear the energy and do a prayer for, you know, some tobacco and pray for help to release her husband's spirit out of the house. And I look around the house and it's like a flea market threw up in her house, man. She's a hoarder. <laughs> Damn. Wall to wall flea market, just junk. And, uh, I think to myself, like, man, this is insane. Like I have to help this lady. I don't know her other than what I remember as a child, but I would help anybody's parent, let alone anybody. If they're in this condition, this is not good. So I go outside and I tell wife, I said, look, you know, you're going to have to come up real quick and I'll introduce you to my, my mom and, you know, see what you think. She, she, she meets my mom matter of seconds. She goes, I'm not living in that house. The house is dark. The house is evil. You know, it's possessed. This and that. And the other, I'm like, ah, oh, but we don't really have an option. And, um, I said, look, just trust me. I can, I can fix, I can fix this situation. And, uh, just a little background story on this part is probably about 15 years before that I'm in New York and I, my friend Brandy tells me, Oh, you, I want you to go meet this gypsy woman. She's a card reader. She's like a psychic witch. Da, 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 da. She, you know, so I go sit down with this lady and she flips down these cards and she's like, Oh, your life purpose is to save your mom's life. I'm like, what are you talking about? My wife's been, my, my mom saved my mom's life. She's been, but I was like, she's been gone since I was 17. She goes, it doesn't matter. You're going to save her life. Fast forward. Here's my mom just about to leave the planet physically, emotionally, mentally, you know, her husband killed her, killed himself. He had, uh, ancient orange, which gave him cancer. He was a smoker or a drinker, but he was on hospice in their house for, I don't know how many years winds up shooting himself with 357 in his chest, dies in the hallway. Boom. So my wife, I look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay, I'm going to send you guys back home. I'm going to come up and I'm going to empty this house. I'm going to redo it and we're going to be okay. You know, I got people up here. I got friends up here. It's going to be fine. So call my brother, tell him what's going on. He's like, whatever, dude, fuck, that's crazy. Disconnected. Don't blame him at all. But my, you know, again, he doesn't have a relationship with my mom since he was like 14, 15. So it's nuts, man. So I go back up and the first day I'm driving to her house, it's, uh, I think in September and in San Francisco, you get your summer, September, October, November, usually. And I drive up, park my car. And I swear to God, dude, hundreds of thousands of dragonflies are flying up the street. And I'm like, what the hell is this, man? And, you know, in the, in some Native American culture, you know, ways, teachings, the dragonfly is all about seeing through illusions because, you know, the wings are translucent. They got the swirly energy in there. And that was me being able to see through the illusion of what I was getting myself into and see what it really was. So I start to go through my mom's stuff. I'm like, okay, mom, you know, we've got to clean some of this stuff out, make room. If I'm going to live with you and take care of you, you know, my daughter is not even walking yet. She's going to be crawling around here. We can't have this stuff around. And to get a little descriptive, dude, they're three foot bombs 
on either side of the fireplace. Machine gun bullet belts around some of the doorways. Her husband had pictures on the wall of like a Vietnamese dude naked on the front of his tank with his face blown off. You know, another dude standing in the jungle holding up a foot, like laughing. <laughs> That's how he got the Asian orange. They used Asian yeah. origin, orange on him. Yeah. So gnarly. Um, Martyrs everywhere, dude. Just like artillery. It was like a fucking army. My mom lived in basically like a flea market slash army. <laughs> it was insane. So I had to start cleaning it out. Um, a couple of buddies came over and the downstairs was like a poker room. The garage was this huge um, metal working machine shop. And then another room was like my mom's embroidery room, you know, that I don't think she even worked in. And the, one of the funniest things was, you know, at Christmas time where you see those trees and they have like the white flock, like they spray white stuff on the tree. Her house inside looked like that, but it was dust. <laughs> Gross. It hadn't been cleaned in like 10 years. Probably the whole time the guy was laying in bed, you know. So anyways, I'm cleaning the house. And then all of a sudden, man, it's like, whoa, dude, my mom is fucking nuts. She's sitting around screaming. She's racist. My mom's not racist, man. This lady grew up in the Mission and in the Sunset District in San Francisco. Owned a business where she took care of multiple, you know, um, color people. And was racist. Now she's a racist. Now she's talking about, you know, how evil Obama is and how the government and this and that. She's listening to, you know, um, some crazy political talk radio crap. And I'm like, this lady's nuts. You know, she's malnutrition. She's on drugs. She's on alcohol. Like, what am I doing? So I'm like, after about a, about three weeks, I'm like, like okay, mom, we're going to take you to Kaiser. We're going to get you to there's like a medical, you know, hospital here. We're going to get you a checkup. Cool, let's fucking go. Arr. She goes into the room. I pull the, the doctor aside and I say, hey, look, man. Can we get a CAT scan on my mom? Or like, maybe you know what's going on. Is she schizophrenic? What's going on? He goes, what are you talking about, man? She's she's demented. I'm like, what do you mean demented? What's What do you mean? He goes, like, demented. I was like, what's demented? He goes, dementia. And I'm like... I don't know what that is. He goes like Alzheimer's and I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, man. He goes, how do you not know this? I'm like, this is the first week or a couple weeks I've been with her in 23 years, man. He, I'm like, he's like, whoa. He's like, okay, well, she's been like this for at least six years, maybe longer. Her husband got on hospice, you know, he got his, half his, his tongue cut out half his jaw taken off. He could barely talk. He got a trach. They would have given him the alcohol and the drugs down the, the trach, you know, and he should have died years ago. But the only reason why he was even around still was for your mom. The guy was in so much pain. He was like drinking liquid morphine like it was water, you know, just to deal with the pain. And I'm like, oh my God, dude, this is insane. I'm like, I got a kid. I can't, I can't deal with this. I'm like, what do I do to the, I'm talking, talking to the doctor and the doctor says, well, you could do one or two things. One, you try to take care of her, which you're not going to be able to do, or you call the police and they come and they handcuff her and they 151 her, you know, cuckoo person, crazy person. And I was like, or 5150. And I was like, I can't do that to my mom. He's like, well, 
sorry. I don't have to tell you. Like, total, like, doctor style, like, cold as shit. <laughs> yeah. And that's, like, on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or whatever, and I'm like, oh, my God, dude, what am I going to do, bro? This is insane. My wife is like, this is nuts. Like, my, my mom's dropping pills around the house. My daughter's crawling. Easily could put it in her mouth. So I'm like, I got to go to ceremony. So I go to another TP ceremony, and it turns out that the guy who's running the meeting, they call him the road chief, he and his wife are taking care of someone with dementia. Genius. So I actually get to voice myself like, you know, that if anybody has a special prayer, you know, grab some cedar and pray. And I prayed out loud. And one of the main guys was like, look, you got to put some cedar for that in the fire, which you just expressed is big. It's heavy. You need to clear that energy. And um, I'm like, all right. So I did. And then after the ceremony was over, both the road chief and his wife came up to me and they're like, look, you know, you need to call the police on your mom. You need to do this. It's not your mom anymore. You know, she, it'll be, she would go, it's the best thing you'll ever do for her. And I'm like, whoa, oh my God. And in my mind, I'm like, I can't do it. I'll just man up. You know, here I am thinking I can power through it. And, um, what happened was, so that's Sunday morning, Monday morning, you know, we drive from my buddy's house in Oakland to my mom's house and we're in the house and my mom threatens to kill me my daughter and my wife with a gun. So I get my wife and my daughter out of the house. We call 911. Then I call my monster. They show up, the cop shows up and um, he's like, what's going on? I was like, look, man, my mom's nuts. She got dementia. She just tried to threaten to kill us. There's guns. There's mortars, there's all kinds of crazy artillery in this house, you know, what do I do? He's like, I'll go talk to her. He goes upstairs and talks to her. And my mom, um, is very, very smart, you know, I do. and she's very manipulative. So she was able to manipulate this cop into thinking she was totally fine. So he comes downstairs and I was like, he's like, oh, you know, she seems fine to me. I'm like, no, dude, she's not fine. She's on a bunch of drugs. Her husband just killed himself. And when I said that, the cop's face dropped. He steps back from the house. He looks and he goes, oh, my God, son, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I was here that night. I'm like, you don't need to be sorry about any, anything, dude. I don't even like that guy. I hated him. He was abusive. But I need to help my mom. So can we figure that out? He's like, hold on, man. Let me make a call. So a psychic shows up. Within two minutes, the guy comes back downstairs and says, like, yeah, she's, she's talking about killing herself. We're taking her in. So they take her down to Mills Peninsula Psych Unit. Um, for a couple of days, they evaluate her. Yeah, she's got dementia. She's got this, this, and this. They take her to Kaiser. They detox her off all the drugs. While she's in Kaiser, I'm doing the remodel, the cleansing on her house, everything. Um... Physically and energetically, I'm trying to get her husband's spirit to leave the house because he's attacking me energetically and my daughter and my wife energetically. So it's literally like the day Kaiser's going to tell my mom she has to go home. I'm like, no, man, look, at she's still not there. She's still cuckoo. I don't even have a kitchen or let alone carpet in the house, anything. And they're like... We're going to send a adult protective services over there to evaluate the house. I'm like, all right. 
So they go over there. The lady's like, yeah, she's, it's fine. There's a bed here. There's a toilet here. She can move in. I'm like, how would you put, would you put your mom in this house? I can't believe you're about to do this. You know, it's not even, there's, there was mice in the house. I just got the exterminator to come over. Like, the exterminator's coming over tomorrow. Like, just give me a minute. They wouldn't do it. So I go back to Kaiser, convince them to take my mom for one more day. That day, they put the carpet in, exterminator already came in. I go to Kaiser, and my mom goes, opens up her eyes, and she's like, whoa, what am I doing here? How long have I been here? And I'm like, what do you mean? You've been here for like three weeks. She's like, oh my God, I thought I was here for like six months. What about my house? I'm like, don't worry, I've taken care of everything. I'm paying the mortgage and everything's good. And she's like, well, what happened? And I was like, what do you mean? You don't remember? And granted, again, dementia. I'm like, you threatened to kill my wife and my daughter and I. And my mom starts to cry and I was like, look, you know, we're gonna have to, you know, you're gonna have to go into a place where they're gonna do some testing. They're gonna help you out, and try to figure out what's going on. Social workers, they're angels, they step in. They're like, look, family members normally don't do this stuff. It's too emotionally triggering. You're gonna have to let us take over. I'm like, cool, I can't do this. I lost all my clients within three months. I have no money. I'm trying to get back on my feet. Try to get my mom into, so I got my mom into this uh, assisted living home, but it was like floor over the cuckoo's nest. Dude, these people were like walking around like zombies. Go in there a couple days after I got my mom gets in there and my mom looks at me, she's like, get me the fuck out of here. And I was like, yeah, I'm gonna do it. Don't worry. So call up the social worker. We got to get my mom in a different place. I wound up having to spend 4,500 bucks a month for this other place. That's a really high end locked facility for people with dementia and stuff. My mom's there. She's calling adult protective services. You know, um, I'm in jail. They won't let me out of here and all this story. So I'm dealing with adult protective services numerous times. There's this people called ombudsmans. They're like elderly advocates. So I'm like, look, just call the other social worker because this is the pattern that keeps happening every time my mom has to move. So I'm trying to get my feet back on the ground. Finally, I mean, work-wise. And then finally my wife's like, look, we have no money for diapers and no money for food. We're going to go down to social services. She used the word social services, so I'm not triggered for about, we're about to go get on welfare. And I'm like, whoa, man, I used to make over a hundred grand a year. Now I'm about to go get welfare. This is insane. Yeah. And I used to, I used to be ignorant and be go, how in the fuck does anybody wind up on welfare? That's so ridiculous. Go get a fucking job. Ignorance straight up, man. And I apologize to anybody who's on welfare and it's fucking horrible to be on welfare. It's not easy. It's not okay. It's not set up to benefit the people. It's made, it's there to make you fucking struggle even more to make you feel like shit. So we go down to the welfare office. Luckily the social worker is super nice. And she's like tripping out that it's us trying to get welfare. She's like, you have no idea how many f families have come in the last year to get on this. It's so sad. Like she starts to cry because she sees my daughter and I'm, I'm just like heavy depressed. My wife's freaking out. 
she's got PTSD from when she was a kid. Her mom always used to be like, ah, welfare. Blah, blah, blah. So I get on welfare and it's like 300 bucks for food and 300 bucks for like diapers and whatever. How can a family of three survive on 600 bucks? You can't. Luckily I had my mom's house to live in. So I start to slowly build my practice back up. I start going to a lot of ayahuasca ceremonies, trying to get like my healing to happen, sitting up in a lot of teepee ceremonies, surrounding myself with as many elders that I can to just like survive. I'm in survival mode more so than ever in my life because I'm looking over and there's my wife and my kid now that I have to take care of, you know, and I have no support from my family. You know, zero. Everyone's like, well, how come you don't have your brother do it, dude? The guy's a fucking millionaire. It's like, that's not, my, that's not my brother's responsibility. If he wanted to do it, he would have done it. I don't know what's going on in my brother's life. He doesn't tell me about what's going on in his life. I'm not going to pry into, I'm not going to even ask him for the help. You know, the, to me, that was like, if he wanted to do it, he would have done it, you know? And, um, you know, and then the rest of my family, they got, they got their own issues alcohol, depression, you know, all that kind of shit, whatever. So here I am by myself with my wife and my kid in this house that's haunted. And I'm trying to clear the energy out constantly because my back starts to just go out. I can barely walk. Like my lower back is flaring up my upper backs. I'm going to chiropractor acupuncture three or four times a week, just trying to walk. And finally my, my chiropractor, incredible chiropractor woman who's a friend of mine, uh, Tara Downey, she says to me, this is not your back, like your physical spine. This is energetic. This is all emotional. So I'm like, okay. So I'm like, how do I figure this out, man? And, uh, I wind up, uh, what happened, man? I wound up, um, going into this one ayahuasca ceremony and the, and all of a sudden my, my whole body hurt. And a chain of events happened. I got this total download, like this house is trying to kill you. There's too much emotional trauma in that house and the memories and the energetic imprints in the house. It's going to kill you. You need to sell it. You need to get out. So I go home and I tell my wife, we're going to, we're going to sell the house. <laughs> She's like, Oh my God, thank fuck out of here. That was Sunday night, Monday morning. I go to walk out the front door. And if you can imagine or visualize, there's the front door right in front of you. And to your left, there's a door to a closet. And I'm walking out the front door and I'm getting ready to walk out the front door. And a, a voice says, look in the closet. I'm like, for what? Look in the closet. I open the closet door. There's nothing in the closet. I'm like looking. And then I look all the way in the back left corner of the closet. And there's a brown burgundy velvet bag. And I'm like, what the hell is that? I pick it up. It says Dugan's Mortuary. It's my mom's husband's ashes. Whoa. And my teacher, multiple teachers are like, there's something in that house that's drawing back his energy. I'm like, I've been here for three years. I can't find it. I decide to move out. He shows himself to me. Fucked up. I panic and I'm like, okay, let me just hide this in the garage. I'm not going to tell my wife yet because I don't want her to freak out. I'm just going to go pray about this and figure this out. Next morning comes and I'm like, hey, babe, uh, I found his ashes. 
And she's like, you go downstairs right now to your office and you pray, you figure this out. Like we get you, you, I don't know, I don't, I don't even want to talk about it. So I go downstairs, I pray, spirits tell me, you got to take him to the beach. You got to put him in the ocean. You know, he's this, he's from, I a surfer, it'll be good for you. So I'm like, all right. So I walk upstairs and my wife says, oh, you're taking him to the beach. I'm like, yeah. So there's a, an area where I would go and pray there with my chindupa. And I'm like, oh, cool. I'll just go there and I'll walk down on these, it's these cliffs by in Daly City by our house. And you can walk down to the beach. I'll go to where I usually pray and I'll just go down to the beach and it'll be, it'll be chill. So I go down there and I get to the spot where I think I'm going to be able to walk down. And it's just a sheer like sandstone cliff. I'm like, if I go down there, I'm going to fucking die. And I'm like, all right, let me just walk around this hill a little bit and then I'll, I'll go down. And this dude makes me, meaning the guy whose ashes I'm taking, makes it hard. Of course it's going to be hard, dude. This guy's an asshole. He makes me hike an hour around, which is all sandstone, stone, trying to figure out how to get down to the beach. I finally get down. And I sit down, and I'm taking a deep breath. I sit on the beach, and I open up the, the cardboard box. And there's like a, I guess it's like a stone porcelain thing with his ashes in it. And I open up the the plastic bag with his ashes and I take my tobacco out and I sprinkle tobacco onto his ashes to get ready to do the prayer. And a raven comes and I've had been working with ravens energetically, spiritually for, I don't know how many years, lots, a long time. And a raven comes and sits down literally 10 feet in front of me and stays with me the entire time I'm praying for my mom's husband. And I prayed to him. I said, look, man, Leave my daughter alone, man. You're coming at her at night. She's having night terrors. You're you're killing me, man. You're trying to kill me. Leave me alone. I have a family. I'm doing the best I can for your wife. I'm going to sell this home. I'm going to take care of her till she dies. Leave me the fuck alone. I forgive you. I forgive you for breaking my nose. I forgive you for disrespecting my grandparents. I forgive you for disrespecting my mom. I forgive you for shattering my family. Leave me alone. And I grabbed the bag and I walked out into the ocean. And right when I did that, the raven flew up and stayed right above me, about 12 feet above me. And I dumped his ashes in me. And I'm thinking to myself, like, wow, here I am, the guy who had to go in there and clean out all his stuff from my house that I grew up in as a kid. And now I'm the one putting him to rest. Talk about a life lesson. You know? Yes. Yeah, and I thought to myself, yeah. Wow, dude, like this dude, and this all came to me at this point. This dude really loved my mom, did his best that he could to stay alive, to take care of my mom. And who knows what my mom's picture was that she painted for him of our family to make him be the way he was towards us. And for me to be the one to go there to clean out, clean out all his stuff, for me to be the one to put him at rest, it was, I did, it was a, such a huge healing for me. It was finally closure. And then I go, you know, I'm go back home and I'm talking to my wife. I was like, all right, I'm going to call my friend, Mark Axman's wife, Christina, and we're going to sell this thing. So I call her up and she's like, well, we can sell it. But you're going to have to sell it for like, I think it was like 40000 or 60000 below market value. 
because of the suicide in the home. You have to put it on your thing. You have to put it on the disclosure. And I was like, whatever, I don't care. I got to get out of here. So, um, a couple, you know, we, we do an open house or whatever it is. People come, they, we got a couple people interested. We're going through the paperwork and it just doesn't work. And I was like, oh my God, man. Actually, rewind, dude. We had to do a, re a reverse mortgage on it like a year prior to me finding this thing, which is another horrible scenario. And that whole thing was, that thing stressed me out even more because the guy who was setting it up was a husband of a friend of mine. I don't know what his deal was, man, but it like eight months to even get anything going. And then it, I just screamed on him one day and then it finally happened. Anyway, so we go through this process. People bid on the house. There's somebody that wants to do it and then they back out. And I'm like, oh my God, here we go, man. Nightmare. So. Nightmare. Yeah, total, complete nightmare. I'm literally living in a nightmare right now. I'm on welfare. I barely have any clients. Um, my son is already born, you know? And he was like a miracle baby. We didn't even try to have a kid. Like he just came. Like it took me two and a half years almost to have my daughter. This dude comes out of nowhere, boom. So anyway, so we finally sell the house and it's like, what are we going to do now? So my wife's like, <coughs> excuse me. She's like, well, I want to do a, um, I got an offer to be a partner in an esthetician salon, like a beauty salon up in Sacramento. And at this point, dude, I'm like, I owe my wife everything. You want to move to Sacramento? Cool. You want to do a, a salon? Cool. So we partner up with her friend and her friend and her wind up having a falling out after we do the whole build out and we buy everything for the store. You know, um, I got my mom in a new home in Vallejo after like super traumatic experience, like before my son was even born, my wife, I mean, my mom says that she got a reevaluated and she's not like a neuro something came in, a neuropsychologist came in and said she doesn't have dementia. She can make all her decisions. She's going to come home now. I'm like, no, this is bullshit. So I had to go and have a meeting with a neuropsychologist, doctors, social workers, my aunt, my, my uncle. And we're all like, no, she's not coming home. Sorry. You know? Yeah. And that put a lot of stress on my wife thinking, what are we going to do? Get kicked out of my mom's house because she's going to come home now. We can't live with her. She's fucking crazy. So anyway, sorry, jumping around. We moved to Sacramento. My wife has a falling out with her best friend because he was on what they call suboxone, which is a, a drug, pharmaceutical drug that they use to get people off heroin. He asked me to help him get off the suboxone. I help him get off, but all his suppressed memories come up from his trauma and he's acting out. Boom. My wife says, I'm not doing this with him. So we shut down her business. And I'm like, wow, now I live in Sacramento. San Francisco is an hour and 30 minutes away. What the hell am I doing? So I called up a friend of mine that's a psychic and she's like, this is your time to decompress. This is where you get to rebuild yourself. You just went through hell. Like you went through the most darkest, like demonic three years. This is where you get to relax a little bit and regroup and figure out 
what you're going to do, who you're going to be. And I'm like, but I don't have any fucking money. You know? Like the sale of my mom's house, barely any money. All that money goes to paying for her to live in a new place. You know? She's like, don't worry, it'll happen. So I'm freaking out. I don't know what to do. And then, boom, my phone rings. And it's... uh. This dude, he's like, he f starts fucking with me. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm overweight. I'm insecure. I need a life coach. Da, 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 da. I'm like, Sorry, who is this? And he tells me, and it's this guy who owns, he's a part, he's a owner of a, of a clothing brand in San Francisco. And he wants to help him run it. And he was referred to me from some couple other guys. And I'm like, all right, dude, I'm down. So I start working with him. But this dude is like severe ADD, but also a genius. Work with him for about a year. And I'm like, it's going nowhere. We can't get anything done. <laughs> you know, he starts playing games with money. Now the other, I'm like, I'm done, dude. See you later. Good luck, bro. Like, you're a good dude. You're a fucking dick. But I'm out of here. You know? And then I wind up working for another brand um, to help them do a reorg. Cali's Finest. Super good dudes. But the business partners, they had conflict in between the two of them. We did a whole rebranding of their, their, their company. They had a licensing thing with Smokey the Bear. It was, we literally built out three different brand books. We were going to do Cali's Finest Clothing, Cali's Finest 420, which is like a weed line, and then uh, the Smokey the Bear stuff. We get all the brand books ready to go. Everything's getting ready to launch. And then they're like, we don't have any more money. I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? You can get the money. I know you guys get the money, but now you're telling me you're not going to do it? Like, good luck. I can't do this. See you later. So I'm back to square one. And I'm like, dude, this is insane. Like, either it's the people that I'm attracting because I'm broken and I'm insecure and I'm fucked up. Or, I mean, I thought that maybe there was some dark shit on me. So I'm calling up these shamans and like, what's on me? They're like, nothing, dude calm down. You're going through an initiation. You're not supposed to do that work. You're supposed to do this work. And I'm like, fuck. All right. And in the old days, people like me would, we would get blankets, food, shelter, everything would be provided. But now there's this thing where you have to get paid to do energy work or else you can't survive. It's just 20th century stuff, you know? So I'm trying to figure out what to do. I'm talking to some elders. I don't know what to do. Da, 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 da. And then um, I wind up starting to assist in ayahuasca circles, like sitting next to the shaman, helping out young people in the room, in the room energetically. And I did that for about two and a half years. And simultaneously within that, I had this huge uh, block about labels, like, you know, Greg Carroll from all these companies. Now people want to label me as like a shaman or a Reiki master, a healer or this or that. I'm like, I don't want any of that. I'm just me. Leave me alone, you know? But in the fact that we live in a capitalistic commercial society, people have to have a name, you know, your title. So my buddy calls me up. He's like, dude, I'm going to do this integrative medical addition to our, our clinic in San Francisco, and I want you to be the Reiki master. And this guy's a shaman too, but he's a family MD. <laughs> Brings me into there, and he goes, I know you're going to be able to help us, because I can see. 
intuitively, clairvoyantly, I can feel things. And he says, all right, so I worked a year, but I'm on a stipend some day, three days a week, you know, trying to build up my clientele, everything. Yep. That was a good way for me to build my confidence, you know, and then uh, I wound up working on some of those patients outside of the hospital because it was work that you can't do in a hospital, you know. And then, you know, it slowly turned into my friend Marcella Kroll, who's a medium psychic. I called her up one day. I was like, look, man, I'm struggling. I don't know if I should go be a truck driver. <laughs> you know, I don't know if, what I should, if I should get back on the phone and try to be uh, back in the industry. Uh, what I'm doing. And she says, you need to accept the fact that you are a shaman. And I was like, what? She goes, everybody calls you that. It's the work that you do. So why don't you just accept it? And I was like, well, I'm kind of freaked out about it. She goes, I want you to do something. Try this. Put it on your website and put it on your business card and watch what happens. And literally, Anthony, two weeks later, dude, I got more clients. <laughs> Sick. And I'm like, holy shit, dude, this is crazy. Because it's people want to see your title. There's a psychological thing that happens, you know. So anyway, so I start helping people. I start doing clearings on people's houses. I did a, you know, even in Daly City, I, you know, I did a clearings on businesses, people's homes all over the city. Like, they, oh, they got, you know, my house feels haunted. I got a spirit in here. Da, 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 da. I go in there and help the spirit leave. Um, and I always thought, like, if people in the skateboard industry saw what I do now or heard about what I do now, they'd be like, fuck, no, that guy's a drug dealer. He's a, you know, gangster kind of guy. He's a tough guy. There's no way he's on the spiritual shit. <laughs> That's who I've been. That's who I always was, but I just didn't get the opportunity to do it. So, you know, we're living in Sacramento and everything's cool and I'm traveling to San Francisco to help people. I travel to LA to help people. I'm helping people over the phone. The life coaching thing kind of picks up a little bit. And then all of a sudden it's like, a, it goes on a roller coaster where I'm kind of making money and then I don't make money. Making money and then I don't make money. And then um, last year, um, right around October, money's like, holy shit, what are we doing? We're getting back to the point where we might have to get back on welfare. Um, my wife is experiencing like severe suicidal depression. Really? And she's talking about leaving the planet. She's having these like emotional fits, you know, in front of my kids, our kids. And I'm like, oh my God, dude, like, what the fuck? Is, it, is my life over? If my wife kills herself, then I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. Yeah. So I'm calling people, trying to figure out what to do. I'm stressed out. I call a um, suicide hotline, you know, or crisis hotlines. I call, I call three of them. And, and all three of them, and I swear to God, this is the truth, all of them were like, oh, my God, sir, I don't know what to tell you. The magnitude of what you're dealing with, the multiple thing you're dealing with, I, I, I this is bigger than anything we've ever had to deal with. And I'm like, click. So what do I do? So I call my, uh, they call it Hunka, which is a re adopted, when you get adopted in uh, Lakota. I call my aunt, tell her what's going on. She's like, okay, we're going to start praying for you guys, you know, see what's going on. 
and uh, call up my hunka brother, just relatives in the spiritual community. I was like, dude, we're going to pray, bro. It's going to be good, dude. We're gonna have, we'll are gonna we have a sweat lodge for you guys. We'll figure this out. And uh, so one day I'm looking at my wife and I'm like, I need to doctor you, like energetically, you know, clear you up. Just took her in the backyard and uh, worked on her. And when I was done, usually when I work on people, the energy will come off of them, go through me, and I can expel it really quick. Like, it's kind of weird, but I burp it out. It's because I call it bad air. Or I'll energetically clear it off with feathers or whatever I'm doing, smoke. And, uh, but it didn't leave my body. And I told her to get in the house and I wanted to puking up the stuff that looked like, like brownish black clay it came out of my mouth. And she, my wife was like, Oh my God, babe, I'm sorry. I was like, nah, it's no big deal. I'll be, I'm fine, you know? And I'm depressed, dude. I have no money coming in. I'm trying to be happy because of my kids. And, you know, the next day, my son, I drive my daughter to school. My son's like, Dad, can we please go to the skate park? Because we drive by a skate park every day. And I'm like, dude, you know what? You want to skate? I haven't skated in a long time. Let's go do it. we got to go home and get our boards first. We go home. Dude gets his board. He got his pads. You know, he's like four years old. He's all psyched. I'm psyched. I'm like, fuck yeah, dude. I just set up a brand new board. It's my, it's actually my shape that I had back on Think. That I used to love riding. Um, and we go to the skate park. And literally, we get to the mini ramp. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm just going to take a couple pumps on the ramp. You know, just feel it out. Because I haven't skated in a while. I'm thinking I just need to, like, keep it mellow. I start on the flat bottom. I don't even drop in. This ramp's probably like four and a half, five feet tall. Push. I do a backside carve. Come back down. Frontside carve. The next wall is a frontside carve. And the front of my board comes off my foot and goes out in front of me. Like fishtails out. And I step down. And when I step down, you know, I'm on the tranny. So my front leg, my my... Right leg's on the tranny. My back foot's still on my board. So both my front my front leg buckles right at my knee. And I hear, my back leg's on my board. It goes the opposite way. It snaps. And I look down, and I'm like, the only thing I can, like, so everybody can kind of visualize it, I look like an upside-down T. <laughs> Capital T. Like, literally, both legs are out to the side. And I'm like, Fuck! I scream. I grab my legs. I snap them back in. I look at my son. I'm like, we gotta go. He's like, no, daddy, you said we're gonna skate. I'm like, uh, daddy can't skate right now. Dude, dedication, go, dedication. <laughs> yeah, he was hyped, man. I was like, no, man, we gotta go. We gotta go. And he's like, no. And I'm in my mind, I'm like, I got about 10, maybe 15 minutes of adrenaline. Right? So. I grab my board and I'm using my board as a crutch to get to my truck. Get in my truck, drive home, and I'm like, and my wife's at yoga. Because my wife's at yoga because I'm like, babe, when in your life did you feel the best? She's like, yoga. I'm like, then go to a yoga class. So she goes to this place where she used to go to yoga like 10 years ago, maybe longer. And she's in there praying like, God, please give me a sign. Everything's going to work out. Let me, please let me know everything's going to work out. And I'm laying on my bed in my room. My son is sitting next to me. And I'm like, dude, you're just going to watch a movie real quick. And all of a sudden, my eyes start to go like tunnel vision. Like 
the shock starts to settle in. I'm about to black out. So I sit up, start taking deep breaths, and I'm like, oh my God, dude, I'm gonna pass out. And I'm like, no, I'm gonna have to call 911. So I call 911, hey guys, I blew out my knees, I'm here with my son, this is my address, come over and get me. So they come over, they get me, they, luckily my, my, my cousin is a fireman, so my son's used to being around firemen, you know? Up and they're like, all right, no, hey, buddy, we're going to hang out with you while your dad goes, gets to take care of. And I call my wife and I'm, you know, leaving her messages. Hey, babe, I'm in, I'm in this ambulance on my way to the hospital. I just did both my knees. She calls me on FaceTime. She's crying. And that's her tipping point, bro. I'm like, and I'm panicked, like, oh, my God, dude. Like, is she going to do it? Like, take herself out. Luckily she didn't, you know, and I go in there and they, they don't do any X, I mean, they do x-rays to make sure nothing's broken. They're like, okay, you need to go get an MRI at the whole bit, you know, whatever, whatever. They don't do the MRIs there. The whole time they're trying to give me oxycotton, oxycodone. Of course. Percocet. Of course. You know, you want a morphine, you want some, you want some Dilaudid. I'm like, no, I don't do painkillers. I'm not doing it. And it took probably eight hours being there. And finally the last nurse nurse who's going to check me out. She's like, why don't you want the painkillers? Because I know what it does to people. It turns people into drug addicts. She's like, you know, you're really smart because my son got hooked on these things. It's the worst thing that's happening. So I respect your decision. I'm like, thank you. So get out of that, go home. And I'm just like, what the fuck am I going to do now? Now I can't drive to go work and I have to drive and I have to be able to walk in order to be able to take care of people. What am I going to do? So I got a really good group of bros, like my brothers, like spirit brothers. And I got on the phone with one of the main dudes. Look, man, I think I'm, I'm, I'm done, dude. I think I'm going to tap out, man. I can't do this anymore. I need some help. What can we do, bro? I think I need to go fund me. I don't know if anybody's going to believe anything or if they're even going to care, man. It's, I haven't been in the industry for so long. Maybe the skateboard industry doesn't even know who the fuck I anymore anymore. They don't even care about me, but I need to do something. I'm about to lose it. My wife is going to go. And he's like, done deal, dude. I'll do it for you. So we put it up and honest to God, man, it saved my wife's life Wow. because it was the first time my wife had a very traumatic childhood. Like her, her stepfather was very demonic, evil person with the worst shit you could think of that a, a stepfather would, or a male would do to a, a child. He did it. So she's, she's just like blown away that all of a sudden it's like, here's a hundred bucks, 25 bucks, five bucks, 500 bucks. One guy gave me 2000 bucks and it's it was all micro doses of money, but I didn't look at it that way. I was like, this is micro doses of love showing my wife, that people do care about me, that people do care about our family, that there is love out there in the world, you know, and it literally, I want to thank everybody who gave me a donation. I've done it through email, but hear it in my voice. Thank you so much for saving my wife's life. Straight up, man. And saving mine, you know, so that, I think we made like 25 grand and that carried me, you know, my overhead is five grand a month. 
So it carried me for three months. I had braces on my knees and I get a phone call from my buddy Alan Jones and says, hey dude, you know, you know we, we've been, because me and him have been talking about doing an integrative medical center in the Bay Area and it didn't work out. He moved to Mexico, started this thing down there with another guy and he's like, can you come down here? I'm like, for what? He's like, we're doing Ibogaine treatments. I'm like, Ibogaine? I'm like, that's not my medicine, bro. He's like, it doesn't matter. He's like, I'm like, what do you mean? He goes like, there's no ceremony to get people off heroin. And I was like, what? Like, I thought Buidi, you know, there's a Buidi religion from Gabon, Africa. I thought that that was their deal. He goes, no, dude, that's Iboga. Ibogaine is an extract from the actual plant itself. It's different. And there's no money for this, but since you've been in a circle, do what you do, the shaman work that you do, the energy work that you do, I want you to be the guy. And I was like, oh my God, dude, my prayers are coming true. This dude is about to save my life. And I literally got, I had, I had to go out and get like these bracket braces on my knees, both knees and a cane. And I flew down to San Diego. And this dude picked me up and I'm hobbling and I could barely walk. And I'm like, I'm here to do the work. <laughs> and then that literally like saved me through here, literally, you know, because it's like, and it's, it, it was like a dream comes true. Cause here it is now I'm like, wow, dude, I get to people addiction, calm down. They're a full blown addict one month. Well, I mean, one day. And the next morning, there's no withdrawals, there's no cravings, there's no more addiction. They just need the counseling after that point to find out or figure out or heal the trauma that caused them to even be the addicts. And some of them are just like, well, I blew out my knee playing, you know, soccer and I got on oxys. Now I'm an addict. They don't have any kind of emotional trauma. So that's helped me out a lot, man. And the, even that though, that's like a struggle for me now because there's months where we get a lot of patients, but we're dealing with addicts. So a couple months ago, we had like three people booked to go down for a week. The morning of the treatment, when they were all supposed to go down there, they all dropped out. So I'm like, ah, but again, it goes back to faith, trusting that the exact people who are ready, willing and able are going to be sent to us, you know, and really believing in that. And my friend, Brian will had this prayer in a, in a a sweating. He was like, dude, we're going to fix walk. We're going to get in alignment with our prayers and just be in faith that it's actually going to happen. Like none of this lack, scarcity, fear, frustration, that's not going to work out. Just know and feel it in your heart, in your, in your solar plex that it's going to be working. And I, that's been like three months now and I'm still in it. Amazing. You know? Yeah, man. I mean, I feel lucky, blessed, whatever word you want to use to actually even be alive. I didn't think I was going to make it past 21. Dude, your story is amazing. And I'm fucking, I just want to say thank you for sharing it. I'm hyped that you're willing to look at your own self and be objective and understand your narrative. And it blows me away, dude. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm just, and to me, like, even now, you know, it's like people, you have to be really people that do what I do are even bigger, better than what I do, whatever. You have to be really cautious of like the projections of what people say. Oh, wow, man, you're a healer or you do this and that. It's like, I'm just a weird dude. 
that just happens to, to come from a lineage of healers. Like my mom was extremely empathic that I didn't know until she's sitting in the car with me after 23 years and my daughter's in the back seat and my mom starts grabbing her own mouth going, oh my God, the baby's teething. I'm like looking at my baby and my mom, I'm like, mom, she's fine. She's like, no, 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 her pain, she's, she's, her, her, she's gonna, she's teething, she's teething. I'm like, the baby's fine. Two seconds later, boom, my daughter starts crying. Full-blown teething attack. And I was like, holy shit, dude, my mom's, that's where it came from. Crazy. You know, I knew my parents were going to get divorced the night before my parents got divorced. I cried in bed, like, you can't leave, you know. I didn't know, I didn't know what it was. Everything shut off when I was in third grade. Like, my original... The recollection that my mom, my birth mother, gives me about, like, who I am, she said that I used to sit on the floor in the kitchen when I was really little, probably, like, three, four years old, and sing Native songs, like, First Nation people songs. And then I was really tapped in and whatnot, and I would tell her stories about me and my 12 brothers going out hunting buffalo with my dad. This is, like, past life stuff. Yeah. And this is honestly... The first thing my mom says to me, not first, but in the first hour of meeting her after 23 years, she goes, remember when you used to sit on the floor and sing these songs? Look at you. Look how you are now. You know? Yeah. I was like, wow. <laughs> and then, you know, I just, I, it all just evolved, you know? And now here I am, 45 year old, married, kids, living this life that is like, whoa, you know? I mean, granted, there's so much we can talk about, man, like skateboard industry stuff where i'm at now like well i wanted to i, I wanted to give the people um or if you could give the information if people want to reach out for your services like maybe you could let them where they know where they could contact you um yeah i have my own my private practice is called creating you now so it's creating you now.com c-r-e-a-t-i-n-g-y-o-u-n-o-w.com uh, my email address is creating you now at Gmail, and then the the recovery center, the detox center in Mexico, it's called Medicine Heart Recovery, and uh, the website's medicineheartrecovery.com. My email address is Greg at medicineheartrecovery.com, and uh, I'm open to helping anybody. You know. It means a lot, dude. I'm I'm from a similar story. We talked briefly about that, like broken family and a lot of a lot of negative energies and thoughts and patterns. When you kept saying demented, all I think of is like when I talk to myself in anger. You know, like people tend to narrate them to themselves, talk to themselves too much, and that goes down a rabbit hole. Yeah. Like I know, like what you speak of. So all the work you've done and the fact that you're able to reflect and understand and tell this story to me has already helped me. Brad. Thank and you. I think, I'm happy to say that, man. Thank you for that. Because my life purpose is to do that. I know that now. It's just to help people. I mean, you can ask people in the skateboarders industry, they were my riders, or even other people, maybe company owners, they know that's just beyond the tough guy crap. That's what I did. But if it was sending people extra boards, extra trucks, whatever it was to help people, getting in a van and counseling guides for, you know, a whole road trip, you know, family stuff, girlfriend stuff, whatever it was. That's just who I've always been. And now it's actually my life. I get to do it and be it. I'm just being it. I don't, it's like, I don't even do anything. I'm just being who I'm supposed to be 
you know, my connection with spirit now is just like, allow me to be the hollow channel for you to speak through. So these people can receive the exact guidance, knowledge or healing that they need in order to feel uplifted, focused, balanced, inspired, and secure with who they are and the actions they take from this day forward. Because it is the creator, the God, divine, Buddha, Krishna, whatever you want to call it, Allah, coming through them and me, you know? And, you know, I, I, I told you, man, I was always, ex for the last like four or five years, I thought, man, I, I need to put out some kind of video or some kind of thing to t help people understand my life story in hopes that it, it helps to inspire them to not kill themselves, straight up. Because I remember being 22 years old, sitting in my truck at Ocean Beach in San Francisco with a gun, putting it to my head going, I'm fucking done. You know? Yeah, you I already made it past 21. I didn't think I was going to make it past 21. Get it. I'm done now. Forget it. You know, super depressed, not knowing that the ecstasy was like draining my serotonin and making me like even more loopy. Yeah. But again, it's like my dreams started to go. Yeah. Um, it was like nice. <laughs> Remember, I told you in the beginning. I said my dogs are going to interrupt the show, <laughs> but I think we're yeah, good, man. That's did, good. dude. We did two and a half hours. How sick is that? Yeah, man. <laughs> I can keep going if you want to keep going. No, well, we're going to do another. If you don't mind, can we do another episode? I want you to come back on multiple yeah. times. Yeah, let's do it. Sick, Greg. Uh, thank you no, for everything. Would, you're welcome, man. I like to do it where we talk more, like deeper back end of like the skateboard industry stuff and then maybe be like another time more of like what I'm doing now like just so people can have a more clear transparent view of like the history of San Francisco skateboarding and the industry yeah you know we'll do it hey I have oh, yeah. I, I have certain people that come back on because I'm friends with them and I like really like that they can talk and they share and you know so like for sure and hopefully next time I'm out near you are you still in California yeah Dude, it'd be sick to do one of these in person, too. It's, like, a little different. Because with the internet, there's, like, a disconnect a little bit. But in person, it's, like, perfect. You know, like, a conversation in perfect. Uh, in person yeah, is... Totally. So we'll just keep it going, dude. Keep in touch. That's awesome. Everything you're doing is amazing. And, like, I don't know. Like, my brand's called All I Need. It's, like, once you find out your basic needs and you can figure out a way to mon monetize them and keep them in your life, you can build off your needs and then we can go as far or as big or we could have moderation. Whatever we choose, but... I'm with you, dude. <laughs> I know, man. Thank you for this opportunity, man. It's it's actually healing for me to to get a lot of this stuff off my chest, you know. Yeah. And just share the story. So hopefully, like I said, I mean, it'll inspire, you know, maybe the young guys, maybe the old guys, maybe the old guys will laugh about it, you know, because they can remember <laughs> they've been there with me. Well, it, it's amazing. So. It's amazing because when you are at that bottom, like you're talking about, where you feel like you're gonna end it, it's like you feel like you're so alone. So like the at that time when you hear someone else speaking about the weight that you carry like it really does help you know you don't feel alone anymore You're like oh like this is a suffering that everyone feels or people feel you know it's not just me crazy right yeah especially now with what's going on in the world you know there's a huge disconnect with humanity social media is supposed to connect people it doesn't it makes yeah. it so it's easier for people to flake out on each other not contact each other not call each other you know it's like that's what's lost. People need to get back into we are all one. Like in the Lakota language, it's mitakie uh, oyasin, which means we're all related. Meaning humanity, the trees, the bugs, the rocks, 
you know, the wing ones, the fin ones, the, you know, creepy crawlies, the four-leggeds, everybody. Yeah. You know? Hell That's yeah. been a big prayer for me. We can all live in harmony, man. So. Hell yeah. Well, thank you. You're an inspiration, man. Last thing before we go, I'd just like to thank Bear Mattress for supporting this podcast. Check out bearmattress.com. And if you make a purchase, use the promo code SKATE50 and you'll get $50 off. Also, thank you to World Industries. Please check out worldindustries.com. Like I said, there's 15 classic iconic stickers they just added to the online store. And we got the Shetler shoe up there. Please check that out. And last but not least, thank you to All I Need Skateboarding. Skateboarders rule the world, man. Check out allineedskate.com. Peace.